fellow Estorians. Welcome back. We didn't finish the episode we started last week, which we kind of expected. It was a lot of time period we were attempting to cover. 129 years, that's a lot for us to cover in one sitting. And we didn't. We covered 50 years. We should be able to cover the other 79 today. We're intent on getting through that. It's really good stuff. So this might be a little long, but that's cool. Nothing wrong with that. That's what she said. <laughs> Sean, how's it going? Looking like you got a little green and blue. What is that shirt you got wearing? You're wearing today? It's a mashup of Avatar and Cowboy Bebop. Oh, nice. I mean, anyone who knows those will probably recognize it. Cowboy Avatar, Avatar Bebop. <laughs> hmm. I have a Stark Reminders House beard shirt. This is probably one of the shirts I've worn the most on stream. It's just so convenient and perfect. And I wanted something slightly northern. This that works for that. And it's true. I have that same shirt. You uh, do. I, and I think Rita does too. <laughs> it's a bit of a lie. I do shave, but not very often. <laughs> I don't have that shirt. I do shave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check out Stark Reminders. See, my house beard words are trim, don't shave. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, that's the real call here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shout out to our friend Nina, Good Queen Allison, goodqueenally.tumblr.com is her blog site. That's one L in Alley. Latest blog post is someone asked, why did John have to die? Not like, why did John have to die? But why narratively, why did George choose that when it seems like most people figured out he was going to come back? Maybe, maybe it wasn't so obvious at the time that he was going to come back because like the show hadn't even come out yet. but. Some of us were like, nah, I mean, this is a world that has people coming back, like Stoneheart. So I don't know. It's a good question, though. Like, we, we, don't, we often don't think about things from the narrative choice. We do sometimes, but it's generally, we generally stay in-world, you know, maybe 80% of the time, 90% of the time we're in-world, and then a little bit of the time we think out. So I like these questions uh, like that. So Nina, check out Nina's uh, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com to get the answer to that. I do. I do love to think about things on the meta level. Like, yeah. You know, where will this lead? How, what could this mean? What was George's intent? Things like that. I don't have the thorough knowledge of the books. I don't have the, the time invested in analyzing the details, but I, I have a lot of boosts from the community. Yeah, and, I, yeah. and I do spend a lot of time on that type of thing, like how it could possibly end. Given that there's only X yeah. amount of time, X amount of books, even if George writes everything he wants to write, it, it's still hard for me to think about what the end is. Yeah, you know? like uh, in some ways, you feel like you could maybe figure out parts of it, like certain things that might be set to happen, like that seem like they're very likely. But on the other hand, it's like, how can you predict what this genius is going to do next? Meaning George R. Yeah. Martin. The man's got 60 years of, well, whenever he started writing, <laughs> a writing experience beyond the, most of the rest of us. On one hand, it's like, how can you predict what he's going to do? On the other hand, it's like, well, certain things are going in a certain direction. So maybe something, but yeah, somewhere in between lies the truth, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> As always, you can ask questions. We've got a lot of, we're dealing with some, a mix of obscure and well-known subject matter leading up to right before the Dance of the Dragons, of course. 
And this episode was voted on two weeks ago, beating out the life of Lena, the life of Harwin, and the Basilisk Isles. We'll have a new poll up this week, since this one is going to be in the books. Got two episodes out of that vote. Yeah, that's right. More bang for your vote right there. In the vein of question asking, I will ask you all a question, a trivia question, as we often start. Who appointed the first court singer and first court fool? Double super bonus points if you can name either or both the singer and the fool. So there's up to three answers. Who named the first court singer and first fool? And what were their names, if you know them? Yeah, all right. Walton Stark, the fifth Lord of Winterfell. Of course, he was Warden of the North, as we said last time. It seems like they all were. They were all of age. The North is... Like, who else is going to be Warden of the North? Like, even a, a Veilman? You know, like, what, are they going to send men into the center of the North if something happens? It's just a little awkward. It's easier for the North to send men to the, the, the regions of the Vale that might be in trouble, which... The Vale's not very likely to be in trouble anyway. <laughs> it's, it's the Vale. It's very well protected. I did a little research, by the way, because we know a little bit who the Warden of the East is yeah. and the South, and also how consistently they have been. Apparently, it is tradition. I'm, I hesitate to say always because it might be some weird exception, but just trying to research it, I think the Erie has always been the Warden of the East. Until Robert, Robert tried assigned yeah. Jamie to be warden of the East. <laughs> and Ned was upset because he's worried that if Jamie, the Lannisters are going to be in charge of the East and West. That's too much power to give them. Robert's like, ah, I'll take it back later. I just don't want a six-year-old boy, you know, <laughs> in charge. He's worried about the Dothraki or Danny or whatever. But Which is, of course, and, at the time, that sounds like a reasonable argument. Like a six-year-old boy in charge. It's like, well, but then you later learn, it's like, yeah, but the six-year-old boy wouldn't actually be in charge. <laughs> he wouldn't yeah. make a single but, decision. But who would, though? Lysa? Like, uh, no, know, it would like, be... You know, what time period you're talking yeah. about, I could see his concern. Yeah, it would be, It would have been one of the eminent knights. They're allowed to appoint someone. Yeah. But yeah, he still... It was well hidden in that conversation because it's not... It's, it, you don't realize just how corrupt that decision is. It's, sound, it's couched in some rational thought there. Like, oh, yeah. And you got to yeah. wonder who's in Robert's ear about that, too, telling him yeah. to make that change. Cer- Varys, Littlefinger. Yeah, Cersei know. most likely is, is you know, yeah, she yeah. promoting her own family. That's pretty big. And Tywin maybe pushed Cersei to ask for that. You never... Some of that stuff is, is right up their alley. So the Tyrells, Wardens of the South. Okay. So they've been Wardens of the South. Tyrell was Warden of the South at that time. And it, there was some line in there where Yandel said something along the lines of, as has always been tradition. The oh, okay, cool. Tyrells or Wardens of the West. And of South. course, the Wardens of the West have always been Lannisters. Lannisters, yeah. yeah. Right on. Okay, cool. So there, well, that's that's good to clarify. And we'll certainly take note if in the books we get a, a change from that, a, diver, a, a deviation from that. Like right now, I suppose the Warden of the North is Roose Bolton. Yes, that, that is specifically. Yeah, yeah. cool. Okay, so. okay, so Walton Stark took over. Remember what happened was his father, Brandon the Boisterous, or bo- boastful. Sorry, Brandon the boisterous was <laughs> was the second lord. The fourth was Brandon the boastful. So Brandon the boastful. They went to the golden wedding in forty nine. Remember the journey home took a lot out of him, and he passed not long after. And Walton Stark ascended in, sometime in the year fifty. Now remember one of the main subtopics last week was the decline of the Night's Watch under the Targaryens. The and something I want to add to that point: houses are constantly having new kids. Maybe not constantly, but every once in a while, there's more children. There's ways for them to continue to exist. The Night's Watch, of course, with its prohibition against having children or even marriages, 
doesn't have its own source of manpower, doesn't have an internal source of manpower. It has to get criminals and people that decide to take the choice and, and, and go... Honorable second son, yeah. naive second son. Yeah, the combination <laughs> of the two, yeah. Suckers. <laughs> <laughs> so without... So you might think that it was a gradual thing, and it, in some ways it was gradual, but in other ways it was, it was very fast because it was like a faucet of manpower. All seven kingdoms were sending a certain amount of manpower fairly often. And that just... I, w- I don't want to say the whole faucet shut off, but it turned down to a trickle because you stopped having these wars between the seven kingdoms, which obviously that's a good thing. But this is a small side effect of that because there's not enough men to man the wall and that's going to cause some issues. And the Night's Watch, being an organization that has existed for so long, isn't going to be the quickest to change <laughs> given it's been so static for so long. So they're not going to necessarily change with the times given they're they're not used to changing with the times. That's not something they've ever really had to do. The times have, have been pretty static. Westeros is a remarkably unchanging place. <laughs> it makes things like the Warden of the North being changed from Winterfell to Roose Bolton or the Eerie to Jamie. You know, these changes, there's lots of big changes happen. In certain, and similar big changes were happening like after Aegon took over, yeah, right? Yeah. Like whenever you have regime changes, there's a lot of tumultuous traditions discarded, you know? Totally. And so what started to happen is the manpower trickling down that caused problems with the Night's Watch. But then there was a bit of a reversal, a a short-term reversal, which was the civil war between Magor and Aegon the Uncrowned, followed by Magor's ongoing issues with the faith. He had lots of wars with the faith, which sent a lot of men to the wall. A lot of poor fellows and warrior sons started being sent to the wall. So there were a decent, there was a resurgence of manpower because there was, this was a big problem. There was lots of angry poor fellows and warrior sons about fighting with Magor. Then Magor was defeated. We're, we're past the time of Magor. Magor was overthrown in 48 and we're in the year 50. So Jaehaerys takes over with Alisand, right? But there was some transition from the old regime, right? You've got some Magor loyalists that are sent to the wall including four of Magor's Kingsguard. First of all, two of his Kingsguard, one of his Kingsguard was killed almost right away, like the day he was killed, basically, or like the night before. And one of them was executed for having a primary role in the execution of two queens, two of Magor's queens, which was grounds for execution when you're a Kingsguard. So the remaining five, one of them opted for trial by combat and lost. The other four, two of whom had defected to Jaehaerys, they switched sides. Jaehaerys was like, nah, yes, Magor usurped the throne, but you swore an oath to him. Defecting is no go. You can't do that. You can't have Kingsguard that defect. You're going to be executed. But Alisand's like, well, well, what about the wall? Maybe we can send them to the wall. He's like, okay, sure, wall. So four of them go to the wall. (laughs) Two of them are given command of two of the older castles. Older castles, they've started to fall into disrepair because we've already gotten to the point, only 50 years in, where some of the castles are deteriorating from lack of manpower, lack of even being open. Some of the castles have been shut down. One of them was Olivar Bracken, took over Rhymegate, and another one's Raymond Mallory, Sable Hall. Nina writes, wow, another Bracken who is a villain. This is my surprised face. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) the Brackens are bad guys again. Rhymegate and Sable Hall are to the east. So towards East Watch by the Sea, not all the way on the coast, but east of Castle Black in between East Watch by the Sea. So, of course, what happens? These two team up in rebellion. They're like, yeah, this is 
this is what we do. The, the Night's Watch is in decline. We're, we used to be with Magor. I don't know what they were, what they were thinking. Yeah, what are those, what's their plan? <laughs> Take over the wall? Okay, yeah. You can have it. It's, it's, <laughs> like, it's a, definitely one of those cases of, okay, step one, rebellion. Step, what's after that? Exactly. You don't even have a step, step, step three, three or profit. two. What's step two? Yeah, we don't even know. I don't even know if there's a step three or two. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't even think they thought that far ahead. Nina says, I have to imagine Bracken and Mallory didn't think through their rebellion at all. <laughs> so she agrees. Not mm. only is there a history of Stark kings intervening at the wall, when times get bad. So if they're thinking, ah, the wall is weak, but did, did they forget about the Starks and the entire rest of the North? Nina says, but now the Targaryens are kings. They're supposed, they need to enforce their rule. That means stepping up to defend the realm when there's a problem. So that would mean possibly having to deal with dragons as well. So like, are, are you going to beat the Night's Watch, the North, and the dragons that get sent? Is that really the plan here, Bracken and Mallory? Yes, that was apparently the plan, but... And even if they did, then what? Yeah, what, then what? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, then maybe what? they just wanted to go down fighting. They just didn't like where they got stuck and they didn't care about winning. They just, I don't know. What's wild is it's, yeah, it sounds like bizarre and unrealistic, but there's so many examples in the real world of rebellions that look just as dumb or as hopeless yeah. as this. And sometimes people are hoping when they rebel that other people will rebel too. But this is not as likely especially in this region where the Starks are extremely popular and well-regarded and it's your, your odds of finding allies are pretty remote. But maybe there was a different attitude in the Night's Watch of those in, those, in that era that affected this or pushed them in some direction. Who knows? They, they were all in a bubble of some kind. <laughs> so anyway, it didn't work very well. Now, you would think maybe the Starks were intervening more often because of these issues, because of the Night's Watch being in decline. But on the other hand, maybe this was one of those first times where the Night's Watch was tested due to its lower level of manpower and thus the Starks had to help before maybe it wasn't necessary because as we know, when Aegon the Conqueror landed, it was 20 or 30,000 men that was under the command of the Lord Commander. Fast forward only two and a half, three generations here and... Well, we've already got abandoned castles. So uh, you can see just how quickly that declined. Here is a quote, because most of the Watch stayed loyal, and the Stark in Winterfell did what the Stark in Winterfell tends to do. Once joined by Lord Stark and his bannermen, the Black Brothers retook Rhymegate and hanged the Oathbreakers, save for Oliver himself, who was beheaded by Lord Stark with his celebrated blade, Ice. When word reached Sable Hall, the rebels there fled beyond the wall in hopes of making common calls with the wildlings. Lord Walton pursued them, but two days north in the snows of the haunted forest, he and his men were set upon by giants. It was written afterwards that Walton Stark slew two of them before he was dragged from his saddle and torn apart. The surviving men carried him back to Castle Black in pieces. Yikes. So that's pretty epic, right? You get this, this badass Stark Lord who killed two giants, apparently personally, maybe he had a little bit of help, but... That's pretty epic way to die. He, he went to Stark Valhalla for sure. These giants, though, that's that's kind of interesting. Only two days ride out? Like, that's really close to the wall, isn't it, Sean? Like, that's that's a little unusual. You could expect they were a little surprised by that, seeing them so close. I wonder if it was less unusual at that time. Maybe, or maybe. they've been sent for, maybe giants in general, but maybe there were a couple there for some particular reason. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, and, and it, it's possible that the free folk knew were aware of the decline of the watch and were they were pressing a little more. They're like, hmm, this is our chance. This is let's press taking advantage of of their new weakness. How long had Oliver and those other guys been up there? Oh, not very long. Uh, oh, about two years. Like I, think. A, I think two years. 
So that's long enough to maybe have coordinated with wildlings. That's true. That's true. It says, and his bannerman too. So you, as you can see, Stark wasn't alone. Apparently, this party that went north must not have been that big if, if giants killed the Stark. And I, I'm, not, I'm not clear on how large this group was, but in that region, the, the bannerman east of Castle Black, Umber, would be among the most likely there, the, the eastern portion of, of the north there, closest to the wall. Bolton, maybe Hornwood as well, some in the region, maybe even some Skagosi, not clear. Now, what's funny is, again, in current times, John has sent men to one, maybe both of these castles. It's not entirely clear, but he hasn't appointed any commanders yet. He has appointed commanders at other places like the Iron Emmets, a, a commander of one of the castles, etc., and one of the skin changers, etc. He's appointed people to lead some of the castles, but some of the others, either we haven't been told who he appointed or he hasn't appointed one yet. Mina writes another example here. There was Lord Willem Stark, older brother of Artos the Implacable, the famous Stark, who in 226 AC, so only 70-some years before the start of the books, joined forces with his bannerman, Harmond Umber. Again, we got an Umber example to stop Raymond Redbeard, whose descendants still exist amongst the free folk that have joined with Stannis. This was a time when the Night's Watch was led by Sleepy Jack. <laughs> he got that nickname for allowing Raymond Redbeard to get past him. I remember talking about that at one point and wondering how it's possible that was unfair, that he might have been put into an impossible position and mistakes of people before him. He just happened to be in charge when it all came and fell apart or whatever. It's entirely possible. I mean, Sleepy Jack had vastly fewer men than even this era. So yeah, we're talking the decline accelerated even more. Now, we have said this once or twice before. Stark lords don't usually fight with ice because it's so big. I picture maybe Walton being an exception. <laughs> Just maybe being big enough to wield it, fighting giants. I want to picture that because it's so cool, but I have no idea. Now, Raymond's head. <laughs> they, he fled north with some of his loyalists and a free folk chieftain delivered his head to Eastwatch a year later. And they're like, we didn't like him either. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Star Wars, like, I don't like you either. That's, that's basically what happened. And they were like, well, what happened to the rest of his men? And, and they said, we ate them. <laughs> that's what he said. Oh. We ate them. <laughs> so I don't know if that was just to intimidate the, the rangers or just he's just having fun or maybe they really did eat them. It seems possible. Like, I, you definitely can't put that past them. <laughs> Something might have been lost in translation. They might have consumed them, they might have absorbed <laughs> them into the wildling culture, you know? Yeah, you never know. Maybe one or two were allowed to join. I have a feeling, though, that maybe more than a feeling. That, remember a lot of these people who joined with Mallory and Bracken were former poor fellows. So they're devout worshippers of the seven. Not sure they would get along with the free folk who were cool with skin changing and all this other stuff and the, the heart trees. But that is also an unusual combination. How many of these poor fellows and warrior sons were like, I'm not following one of Magor's Kingsguard. <laughs> like that was our yeah. arch enemy. But hey, they're all once they're all on the watch, maybe it's all like, yeah, we're just all one team now. Something had to bring Can you imagine getting some, some new life perspectives when you're sent to the wall. Yeah, you know? yeah. From the white cloak to the, the black, right? <laughs> Big difference. It's a lot colder up there. We can lay some of this decline of the Night's Watch on, on, on the Targaryens. And in fact, Walton's brother is going to have that very attitude when he takes over. So the Stark Lord, this decline of the Watch, has forced the Starks to take a more active role in the defense of the North from the North, which is, hey, they're the Warden of the North. That's a 
seems like a fair trade-off, though, given the other thing. I'm not sure. How do you look at this, Sean? What do you think? Well, I wanted to clarify, this is all before Alessand went up there. Very, right? Yeah, we're really close to that. Alessand's coming about so eight like, years into Alaric's reign. I want to say this is my, maybe accidental, right? Like, maybe you could say it's the Targaryens' fault. Maybe they should have been more proactive. But I don't think they made this decision to dismantle the wall. Right, right. No, I they agree. just weren't actively giving it the attention it needed or recognizing the problems that were coming up. And to be fair, leaders of the wall maybe weren't either. You're right. Maybe if they had and brought it to the Targaryens or to the Winterfell, maybe someone would have done something about it more practically. But. And as we'll see, Alysanne is going to take an interest and care. Some of her moves will actually probably make the problem a little worse. Not intentionally, but other things she's going to do are going to have a very positive effect. So, But we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. In the time of House of the Dragon what we're get, we're getting to is this decline is continued. And I wonder when we see this portrayal on television, whether Craig and Stark is going to bring up some of these complaints. He's going to bring up some of the issues that we're going to be discussing here shortly. If he's going to say, look, these, these changes that the Targaryens did have caused these problems. He's going to expect a little something. He's going to be like, you, y'all owe us or <laughs> something like that, or just, just use it as a negotiating tactic, something to, to lay on the table. Winterfell is going to be very concerned about this whole situation. There, they're going to they going to need to make sure that whatever Targaryen sits the Iron Throne continues to at least respect this arrangement of the Wall. Like it's one thing if they accidentally harm it in a way that they can that the Starks can make up for. That's fine. They can deal with that. But they can't have the Targaryens making moves that actively harm it in a way that they're unable to address or that causes them undue burden. So far, we haven't seen that, but you can imagine that there will be, or the possibility is there. Like, there would be Starks that would be worried about that. Like, well, maybe so far that doesn't happen, but we're only 50 years in past Aegon's conquest. There's a lot more time to pass. They're looking ahead. This is the new normal, right? We, they had 8,000 years of one way, and now they're only 50 years into this new way. They just don't know how things are going to work. You know, it is a little perplexing, given the new perspective we have about this ice and fire prophecy that Aegon apparently knew about. Yeah. It seems like there would have been more of a proactive effort to maintain the wall. Good point. So I wonder if maybe Aegon or someone in there knew it wouldn't be an issue for centuries to come. Somehow they had that insight. So we don't need to worry about it right now, you know? Or if he thought... Or, or maybe uh, maybe it was lost. Maybe someone who knew something about it wasn't aware at the moment or didn't have a plan in place yet. And I'm, I'm not sure. If you want to look at it a little more cynically, I like, I like your ideas there, but maybe a more cynical take would be Aegon didn't think it mattered. He thought, well, what matters is the Targaryens. The wall, all that other stuff, that wasn't in the prophecy. He didn't dream about that. So to him, it maybe yeah. is his second, yeah. it's just secondary. Like, I mean, Melisandre has said similar things. She doesn't say the wall is unimportant, but she's looked at certain things like, oh, this this will be gone in 10 years. Like she thinks that about the free folk. She's like, yeah, this is a doomed people. Like there's no point in trying to save them. <laughs> she keeps that to herself because she knows it's <laughs> very undiplomatic, yeah. but she <laughs> totally thinks it. <laughs> now, and here's one thing that would make the Starks upset potentially. Alaric is going to be an example again of this is why do you send these people? Like it's one thing to send criminals to the wall. It's one thing to send people, prisoners of war to the wall. But these were some particularly bad people that you sent. Why are you sending Magor's Kingsguard? Why are you sending Porfell? Why are you sending these people? Like, this was too much. So many of them at once is a problem. Maybe if they were spaced out a little more, if they were more of a minority, but like this much, it became a problem. And, and this is the kind of thing that they're wary of. Like, what if you send us a, another group of these, but there's three times as many, you know, and, and what are they supposed to do about that? You'd rather have, you know, I'm making numbers up, but you'd rather have four good soldiers than 14 untrained soldiers. Yeah, right? yeah. 
14 untrained soldiers is going to suck up for other good soldiers time training them. And maybe in the long run, that's better. But in the short run, you have to feed them, you have to train them. And, and, and if it's 140 instead of 14, and some of them are already trained, you're really going to have a hard time feeding them. Yeah. And what if they unite together to rebel? You know, you could see a lot of exactly. problems about this particular scenario that it's like a perfect storm of trouble. You know? Yeah, and this is, this is exactly the kind of unforeseen consequences of this new world that they're living in that they would have to be wary of. And far away on the Iron Throne, they're not going to necessarily pay attention or care about what's happening on the wall. Prophecy aside, the Starks, especially some of the other band of Starks who don't know about the prophecy, wouldn't take that into account at all. They would just be like, well, what, is the, what do the Targaryens care about the wall? Like They would just see very little care going into this and, and maybe sloppy examples of sending the wrong people north when they should have been executed. A little more caretaking. There, there may have even been some amount of uh, communication or negotiation over this, right? Like they might have said, like, we're sending you all these people. No, don't send that many. That's too many. Like you said, you wanted more. Yeah. You've been asking for all. And so I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> I guess I have been asking for it. And, and that comes in the Song of Ice and Fire when they talk about how it used to be there were enough knights amongst the brothers to keep the rabble, so-called rabble, the ones who were like ex-violent criminals in line. Those ones were afraid of the knights and the, this, this tough warriors like Corrin Halfhand, who's not a knight, but every bit is capable or more so. The kind of people that the other men would respect or at least be a little afraid of, or both. Here's a take from Nina. The Stark intervention in affairs at or beyond the wall is not entirely a byproduct of the Targaryen conquest, after all. It has always been part of the Stark's job to protect the North in all ways. Whatever's happened in the North has always been their job. Any threat, wherever it comes from. Let's not forget the Night King book version, of course, which was a human, <laughs> was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch may have been a Stark, right? But that aside, the identity of this person aside, what's relevant here is that it was a team-up of King in the North, King Beyond the Wall, and a few others, even a few free folk. And there was Gorn, co-king beyond the wall, and his brother Gendel, who fell to the king in the north as well, and his son, which, well, the king in the north is killed in the battle, and his son took up the, the mantle and finished the war and all that. So that is, we don't want to go too far with saying the Targaryens are responsible for this, but they definitely sent waves of change, and some of it was good, some of it was not. Nina also writes that despite the clear legal distinctions between the responsibilities of the Night's Watch and those of the Starks of Winterfell, there is and seems to have always been something of a symbiotic re relationship between the two. The fundamental role of the Watch is to look out for the return of the others and defend Westeros against that day. But this was a role established by the founder of House Stark, Bran the Builder, when he ordered the building of the Wall. So again, the Watch's responsibility is to hold the realm, but it was the Starks who built the wall, who decided this would be the way of things. They built Winterfell. They decided to take charge of that. They're in the center, all that. So let's, let's keep in mind how things have been and not put too much on, on the Targaryens here, especially given that we're about to get to one who really cared and tried to, tried to make it all work. At the same time, there were a lot of unintended consequences, and this, this rebellion was definitely one of them. It would kind of be like if Hawaii got attacked, the rest of the United States and like, hey, that's your problem. You know, like, <laughs> we're all kind of, I mean, maybe Hawaii is closer to Japan, but we're all kind of in this together, right? Like, yeah. and, it makes more, and it makes more sense maybe for California to be more worried than Florida or whatever. Like, you know, 
don't know if that's the best example, but maybe they, Alaska they are, is a better example. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Still>. yeah. <laughs> but they do have this same. It, it makes sense that Dorn is less worried about wildlands coming across the wall than Winterfell. You know, and Winterfell is less worried than the wall itself. But Winterfell knows if the wall fails, we're up next. You know what I mean? Yes. So like, it, it, there is more onus on them to make sure it goes down. Good point. Good point. Gets goes down well. Gets taken care of. So Walton was probably the shortest lived Stark of the number we're going to talk about. The what is it? Twelve, eleven Lord Starks that we're going to talk about. And there's one other who was pretty short lived, but we're not sure he was as short lived as Walton. One more, and we could have had a Christmas. <laughs> That's well, starts with Christmas. <laughs> Winterfell. <laughs> so Alaric, Walton's brother. Walton didn't have any children. This wasn't a case of there was only a child, so the older one took over. Nope, no kids at all. It was it was clean. And again, we're still not that far from the Golden Wedding. The Golden Wedding was attended by Alaric and Walton. They went with Brandon, their father. So they had seen the South. They had seen the excesses that we discussed last time of the 40,000 people that were at the Golden Wedding and the just incredible amount of wealth and food and pageantry on display. He would have seen Silverwing and Vermithor as well. And when Alisand came to visit in 58, he saw Silverwing again. This is something we talked about more in Fire and Blood when we did our Fire and Blood coverage. It's really fun to see the conversations between them. Stannis gives off, or Stannis, Alaric gives off Stannis vibes. We talked about how Makar was a lot like Stannis. Well, Alaric is too. And Alisand's a lot like Sansa. There's a lot of, there's conversations between them that make us think that maybe Sansa and Stannis will have conversations similar to this if they ever get to meet in A Song of Ice and Fire, which they might not. But Stannis is heading for Winterfell. Sansa eventually will head for Winterfell. Maybe George was working it out. Like, well, if, if Sansa and Stannis do meet, these will be, this is, you know, groundwork for the kind of conversations they'll have. Anyway, we we explore that more elsewhere in our Fire and Blood coverage. This is, this is a little too much to dive into here. We want to keep it to the, some of the basics, but that's a really good episode of, of Sansa and Alisand and Stannis and, and Alaric. They're really, really good stuff. A lot of familiar moves here. First thing he does when Jaehaerys arrives later, because Jaehaerys doesn't come with Alisand. Jaehaerys gets distracted by some Iron Bank business and has to deal with that. So he comes a little later. Alisand's still up there when he comes. When he comes, though, he takes him down to the crypts right away. And it's like, hey, Ned and Robert going to the crypts right away. Especially because Robert wants to see Liana's grave. This is a little bit of the opposite. Instead of Robert being like, why do you bury her down here? She should be out in the, in the open, you know? And he's complaining. Instead, it's Alaric complaining to Jaehaerys. Here's the quote. Walton lies down here in darkness, no small part thanks to you. Stars and swords, the leavings of your seven gods, what are they to us? And yet, you sent them to the wall and their hundreds and their thousands. So many, the Night's Watch was hard-pressed to feed them. And when the worst of them rose up, the oathbreakers you had sent us cost my brother's life to put them down. Yeah, so you can see this is pretty well expressed. I mean, he describes the problem pretty cleanly. He's like, look, it wasn't just that they were awful people. It was also they were starving awful people. <laughs> you know, so part of that problem was created by you. You sent too many people at once. We didn't have the ability to feed them all. Notice that line. Walton lies down here in darkness in small, no small part thanks to you, which is the, like I said, Robert was like, she should be out, you know, she shouldn't be down here in this darkness. She should be out in the sunlight. And then Ned's like, she's a Stark. My sister, I know where she wants to be. I know where she belongs. You know, <laughs> He's a little more respectful, but that's kind of, it's like, shut up, man. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Keep your voice down. This is a crypt. <laughs> <laughs> 
but back before Jaharis arrives, we're still just with Alisanne and Alaric. He even actually approached Silverwing. Alisanne does the thing she does with everyone. She charms him. Not, you know, I don't mean she like won him over through just being friendly. Like she's a good person. She t- respected him. She spoke to him as an equal, but with without being obsequious or anything like that. She still kept a spine. You know, she's still strong about it. Still respectable and respectful, we'll say. And in 51 AC, so we're backing up a little bit, Alisanne and Jairus had a lot of trouble getting the realm to accept their marriage because the Seven, the worshippers of the Seven, what was one of their issues with the Targaryens was incest. They're like, no, none of these incest marriages. And in fact, Rogar, the person married at the Golden Wedding, tried very hard to stop Alisanne and Jairus from getting getting wedded. He did some very underhanded stuff in the process. And this is what they came up with. They're like, hey, let's send out some well-trained septons and septas to preach this new doctrine of exceptionalism, which says the Targaryens can, can do this stuff. It's like, yeah, the Targaryens are different from us. They don't come from Andalos. They come from Valyria. They have different rules. They ride dragons. Do you ride a dragon? No. Then you can't marry your sister. But if you do, if you can ride a dragon, you can go marry your sister. That's basically what they're, basically what they're out there saying. So I don't know how much time they spent in the North. They wouldn't need to be preaching against the seven or changing the beliefs of seven worshippers in the North, except for places like White Harbor. So they probably did go there somewhat. So I figure there was some truck in the North for maybe not all seven of them, but one or two of them maybe, because White Harbor is very important and full of knights and other seven worshippers. Alaric comes around a bit. He's like, yeah, maybe partly some of the groundwork was laid. Maybe he appreciated Alisanne because she also pushed back against the seven a bit (laughs) and got kind of made compromises. Maybe he appreciated the standing up to Magor. Not clear, but either way, he came to respect her. He came to, he stopped kind of being persnickety and, and sniping at her. He started to come around, warmed up to her, we'll say. He even approached Silverwing and his sons did too, apparently, his unnamed sons. So while Alisanne's waiting for Jaehaerys, to come up and finish their tour and do all the stuff they planned on doing, she's like, well, I may as well tour the rest of the North. I've got a dragon. I can get around quickly. She goes to the wall. This is where we get into that whole episode. Lord Burley is Lord Commander at the time. Good name, Lord Burley. Hmm, uh, He's a very big man. The only other Burley... Is there any story behind him? Do we know... Not really. Where he came from? No, there is House Burley. They're small. The only other Burley I can think of was there's an archer... Of who worked, who fights for the Blackwoods, named uh, Billy Burley, in in the Dance of the Dragons. So he may be, we may even see him in season two or three. But that's the only other. This house Burley. Sorry, where are they from? Do they have a banner? I believe they're from the Riverlands. If they were working for the Blackwoods, Makes then sense. they would be yeah. there. But I actually haven't checked. Pretty minor, but yeah, makes sense. Sure. Also, someone from Brotherhood Without Banners. Yeah, yeah, would be in the Riverlands. Yeah. And so we got eight hundred men to greet her. So they they really brought out the the pomp and, and splendor for her, whatever the, the Night's Watch version of that, which was not very fancy. But, but Alisanne, just, again, she just she praises their bravery, eats their food, sits among them, very respectful. They, she won them over too. Interestingly, and also a bit off topic, Silverwing hated the wall. Silverwing hated the cold, but would refuse to pass the wall. So it really implies the magical barrier is a thing, that it really is there, but it doesn't just affect shades or the undead. Apparently, yeah, it 
Silverwing, she says, Silverwing never disobeys her, but Silverwing would not fly over the wall. That's pretty interesting, huh? We said Alaric had seen dragons before, but these men on the wall, very few of them had. Some of them had because they fought against Magor. <laughs> Some of them had seen Balerion, you know? <laughs> so they're like, ah, this dragon's tiny compared to that one. But still, it would have been pretty exceptional to see a dragon near the wall or at the wall. So she sees what's going on. She listens to their problems, something that is a recurring feature of her time as monarch is listening to problems and then coming up with good solutions. Sometimes the solutions have unintended consequences. That's part of the nature of problem solving. But it's never because, at least not that we're told, because of not from lack of trying. These are just, oops, sometimes things don't work quite the way you intended. She looks at the night fort and says, wow, no wonder you guys are struggling. This castle's gigantic. You don't have enough men to man it. It's expensive as heck just to keep it warm. And she talks to Burley and he's like, yeah, we would love to just not man that castle anymore. But what are we going to do? We, we have to we'll just abandon this section of the wall. It won't be long before the free folk figure that out. And then they'll just, this will be like the superhighway area mm-hmm. for them. So she's like, here's some jewels. <laughs> I got lots. I'm the queen. <laughs> got tons of jewels. Here's some jewels. Build a new castle. Because they didn't have enough money. That's, that's what they would have done. They would have said, yeah, we'll build a smaller castle and man that instead. But we can't afford to build a new castle. Where are we going to get the money from that? Just, well, that's where Alice Ann comes in. She says, build you a new castle. And she, she builds Deep Lake. And they rename the castle Snowgate Queen's Gate. It took about eight years to build. So it wasn't, it wasn't done while she was up there. It has a statue of her. It's pretty cool. Nina writes, we're re- it'd be really cool if we could see that statue in the Winds of Winter or a Dream of Spring. John contemplated sending Halleck, that's Harma's brother, Harma Dog's head, so that he contemplated making Halleck the commander of Queensgate, or Deep Lake, rather, and notes that it is badly undermanned, so maybe we'll see it. Maybe we get a chance to see that. So that would be kind of cool. Queensgate is also led by a woman, Morna White Mask. So that's neat. That's one of the wilding chieftains. And we'll see what happens with that. So that's that's a developing situation. That's pretty neat. This is the end. This is when the Night Fort saw its end of being manned. We also see that the Watch was more forgiving to raiders in this era. They were a little more humane about it. Alisan has shown a group of captives, and they describe what they do. When a raider is caught, they cut one or both their ears off, and they let them go. So that way, if they come back, if they raid a second time, you know that they have... This is their second offense because their ears are already gone. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. unless they find a way to regrow their ears. <laughs> <laughs> I, we don't see that practice anymore. Isn't that interesting, Sean? They must have given up on that. Maybe because they're under too much pressure. They're like, with the lack of manpower. They're like, no, we can't give them a second chance anymore. We can't afford that. They, they know we're weak. We have to kill them. We can't give them a second chance. It's too dangerous. Is that how you interpret that? Or can you think of another reason why they might do that? I can think of a few reasons. I can imagine it might be that the wildlings just don't go back a second time. Like, I already got my gear cut off. You go. <laughs> they might have like learned, you know. Maybe, I can think of a lot of factors. But, Maybe they're just getting you know, more desperate. Just changing times. Yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah there's it's a good, good bevy of possible reasons to pick from here, I suppose. Now, Alsan pressures Lord Commander Burley into where are the women? You know, I know there's women around here somewhere. You're hiding them somewhere. And she finally relents. She's like, okay, Molestown exists. <laughs> and, and so she goes there. She talks to the women there. And this is very important. 
She meets the girl at Molestown, and here's the story of why she's there. This girl is at Molestown because she's forced into sex work because of the tradition of first night, which is when the Lord has the right to sleep with newlywed before the husband. Is portrayed in the movie Braveheart. There's a lot, there's some historical debate on whether it really happened in the real world, but that's a whole other story. It certainly happened in, in Westeros. It's existed since the time of the first man. It is a first man tradition, not one of the Andals. The Andals just, the Andal lords just said, okay, we'll do that too. They didn't start it, but they continued it. So they're certainly culpable as well. But it began with the first men and it may date back to the time when there was magical blood. Like some of these people were actual Age of Heroes figures. The way we talk about back in the day, Sean, when we had like, we're comparing it to the Greek gods where anyone Zeus sleeps with is born with some of Zeus's powers. So that's why it's not just so simple as well, this is just straight up rape. Well, it is just straight up rape, but it's, you actually had people who wanted it because they would imbue their children with magical powers. But fast forward to today and no one wants it. <laughs> There's no one with magical <laughs> powers. It's been a quite a while since that was a thing because skin changing doesn't pass down that way. So that's not a thing. That's not even, even that isn't a thing. So it's pretty awful. It's more than pretty awful. It's extremely awful. And this- It's like incomprehensibly awful. Yeah. So much so that it, it, I suspect it probably didn't really happen very often. No. I, I, gotta, yeah. I gotta suspect it had to be a rare scenario where you had a particularly villainous Lord, you know, who was maybe kind of unknown to higher powers that be or local authorities, or maybe only did it to someone who was a troublemaker in town anyway, or something. I, I just can't believe that people would allow it to continue on a very big scale. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't, it wasn't popular. It wasn't common for the Lords to do as far as we're told. Maybe it used to be. But yeah, we're told that it's mostly kept under wraps when it does happen. And most of the Lords don't do it because yeah, it's evil. And they recognize it as that, even though it's technically legal. But this girl at Molestown, though, her example was one of the side effects of this that you might not even think of. Her husband considered her soiled because she was raped by this lord who came by. So she takes the brunt of both of this, like the, the cultural belief that this woman is damaged because someone else had her first versus this cultural belief that the lord has this right. Both of them just are horrible for the women in this situation. None of this is, obviously the rules weren't made by them. So Alisanne's like, this has to end. She reacts the way a decent person would, especially a decent person with the power to do something about it. She's like, no way can this be allowed to continue. Jairus is a little wary of ending it because he's always wary of taking rights away. But she's like, no, <laughs> we're taking, we're ending this. You're not taking rights away. You're, yeah. you're granting, you're, you're protecting rights. And you're not even granting rights. You're protecting rights that already exist. You're right. And that's how she framed it. She's like, look, what would you, and she used it herself as an example. Like, what would you do if, you know, I'm your wife? What would have happened if you weren't the king? And I was just, you were some blacksmith and some Lord comes and he's, and Jairus is like, oh, I'd kill him. And he's like, see, do you see the point here? You know, like, hello, that's what all these men want to do. Minus the ones who were even worse, like the guy who sent his wife away, the Molestown girl. So either they want to kill the man who did it or they throw their wife away or something awful in between. Who knows? Like none of these, none of the outcomes are good. She is adamant it has to end. It does, yet it doesn't. It, it is, it, it, it's gone, yet in A Song of Ice and Fire, Ruse Bolton does it. We hear him talk about it. That's how Ramsey Bolton is born. And he claims that plenty of places in the remote north, it still happens. He's like, yeah, 
He calls Alisanne the shrewish queen that ended it. <laughs> but it still happens. He says it still happens in on Skagos. He says it still happens. The Umbers still do it. He says they pretend it doesn't, but they still do. So it's like, yeah, that's bad. That's real bad. That's one of those examples of the old North that isn't good. It's quite, quite not good. Like the, this is way worse than the sacrificing criminals to the heart tree. Cause at least those are criminals and you know, these are innocents yeah. we're talking about here. Anyway, that's very important cultural change to the North. So Alison, not only is she building castles on the wall and helping them with their manpower issue, but she's making major changes to the culture uh, good ones in this case. Real quick. I just want to clarify, this is all still, while Alaric Stark is... The yeah, Alaric rules for 23 years. So we're still very... We're pretty early in his reign. This is the first third of his reign still. We don't get... Actually, don't have his reaction to this law, legal change. We don't actually hear from the North on this legal change. They make... She goes... This, this happens later. Like, after they're done in the North, they go back to King's Landing and she makes this petition at council one day. But we don't actually hear what the North does about it. Apparently, they're just like, yep, yeah, okay, sure. The Stark... Alaric appreciated, had already grown to respect Alisanne, and maybe he thought it was evil too. I, mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, yeah, this, I'm totally with you here. Let's change this law. But we don't actually hear their reaction to it. It might have been a relief to him on some level yeah. that he didn't have to be the one to stir the pot to change this. Like, he wanted to change it, but now he could say like, hey, the queen said, and you know, she's got dragons, so you better do it, you know? Yeah. So she, she walks the wall and describes just how amazing it is and just how there's nothing like it, kind of like how Tyrion's description of it. She actually goes to the Haunted Forest with an escort of, of 100 men and goes to Last Hearth. But then we get to the situation of the new gift. This, was a, this is exactly what I meant when I said that Alison wanted to help, but some of the things that she did had unintended consequences. She said, okay, so the Night's Watch has trouble feeding itself. That was a complaint Alaric made about not having enough food to feed all this huge batch of new recruits for the wall, these poor fellows. And they had, they, they couldn't afford to feed them all. And so there was starvation and that led, that helped fuel the rebellion. So she says, well, what if you had some more land? I, I traveled through this area just south of the wall. It, it seems pretty undermanned. There's not a lot of stuff happening here. What if this chunk of territory is given to the wall in perpetuity for their food? To, man, to give them more ability to feed themselves. The Starks were against it. The World of Ice and Fire says it was Elard, but that was a mistake. It's, it's Alaric here, but the Starks are still against it later. The idea was they wanted the Night's Watch to focus northward. Like, no, we need, to, we need to feed them and let them just spend all their manpower focused north. Patrol against the Free Folk, watch out for the others, do all that. Don't farm, don't do all that other stuff to, you know, beyond a certain level because... That's the manpower that you need to be sending north and patrolling is going to be used for farming instead. You're going to need more of your recruits to be stewards and fewer of them to be rangers to manage this property. And that's not the goal of the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch is a military organization, a defense organization, a security organization, not a farming collective or whatever. So they were right. They were The Starks who pushed back against this turned out to be right. The star, the Over the long run... This exacerbated the problems of the wall. It was more territory for them to manage, more things that weren't defense. And it's not mentioned, but I think that maybe some of the, the lords of the realm started thinking, oh, they've got their own stuff now. We don't need to send them anything. 
And they need they still needed that. <laughs> I'm not saying that she made the exact correct decision, but I still feel like if the North felt that they should be focusing North instead of farming, like, all right, we'll send some farmers up there and you farm that land and give them the food and they can do that. Like, I, would Allison have been against that? You know, like yeah. if, if the Starks thought they knew how to manage it all better, all right, go ahead. You can still go manage it better, but you're not doing it. And so here's my solution. And the Starks still didn't manage it better after that solution either, right? Yeah, the Starks, yeah. when, they, when, Winterfell, when the wall suddenly had these troops they couldn't feed, the North and the Starks and whoever could have sent them enough food, but they didn't. They didn't. So Allison's right. like, well, here's this land. And so now the Starks are like, well, they shouldn't be farming that land. Okay, you go farm that land and give them all the food. <laughs> like you still have all these other options to do it a different way. And instead of taking those options, they still let it fall apart and just blamed Allison. I don't know. I think her plan was fine. Yeah. Well, here's what here's what the World of Ice and Fire quote says about it. I I, I hear what you're saying, Sean. There, there's it's not like the Starks are just ab- absolved here. Like it's like up. Oh, didn't work. So we throw our hands up. There's nothing else that can be done. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, it's not like that was the only move that could have been made. Here's the quote from the World of Ice and Fire. It may be that the Starks feared that, under control of Castle Black, the new gift would inevitably decline, for the Night's Watch would always look northward and never give much thought to their new tenants to the south. And, as it happens, that soon came to pass, and the new gift is now said to be largely unpopulated thanks to the decline of the Watch and the rising toll taken by raiders from beyond the Wall. Nina sorts through some of the difficulty here in under in understanding how the Starks reacted to all this. She says, Fire and Blood seems to present the Starks, at least with Alaric, accepting the new gift, while the World of Ice and Fire presents more antagonism from the Starks about it. Since both are true, one, we are not told that one contradicts the other. We're just guessing that both are true in that one of the Starks, Alaric was for it, but one of Alaric's sons was against it. And maybe some other Starks that came along later. So you have different Starks that saw it differently and they pushed back or supported it in different ways. She continues here. One or more of Alaric's strong sons was or, was unhappy with that his or their father decided to surrender Stark's sworn land to their Targaryen overlords, lessening his descendants' inheritance and the ancestral role of the Starks as masters of the North. In that case, it would be the same father-son tension that marked Stor- Torin and his sons in terms of how to handle what their overlord was telling them to do. A Stark patriarch acceding to the wishes of the Targaryens while his sons resented that decision. It's a very similar situation, yeah. As a lessening of Stark majesty and power. Then, perhaps either or both of those sons taught his or their sons, especially the eventual successor, Edric, about how those no good, very bad Targaryens stole their land and have no qualms about running roughshod over their ancient rights. So the way this was told to future generations may not reflect what we're reading in the history book. Like the Starks m- may have carried this resentment in part because they were taught that resentment. Not necessarily because of... In other words, Sean, they... Back to what you were saying, the Starks may have framed it as tyranny or stepping on their ancient rights while leaving out the, the intent. Alisan was trying yeah. to help. Like, I think we could be pretty clear on that. I don't think Alisan was trying to mess them up or, or sabotage them anyway. She was trying to rule well and mostly did. That seems to have been lost in this shuffle here. The Starks don't seem to be communicating that to their, if this is indeed the case, they didn't seem to communicate that they were, no, this isn't just them throwing their weight around. No, they were trying to, maybe the solution didn't work, but they were trying to find a solution. What if she had carved out some plot of land that was right near Winterfell and said, this farmland right here next to Winterfell belongs to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> now you guys go farm it and give them all the food from it. Now the wall is not distracted by what's behind them in farming, but they're getting all the food. Like this is what you want, right, Starks? 
Would the Starks have been happier mm. about that? Would they have been okay with that plan? Maybe. You know, that seems yeah. theoretically like what they want, but I feel like they would have had the same resentment. They still would have felt like some of their land was being taken away and they're more concerned about what they're getting than the actual maintenance of the wall. Yeah, it sounds like their problem is they're ruled by the Targaryens. It's, it, no matter what the Targaryens yeah. tell them to do, they're going to be mad about it. Yeah, It's like, no, the only thing that's going to make them happy is being independent. And there's all sorts of problems with that, as we discussed. Like, yeah, there's a lot of benefits to them not being independent, as we discussed under the reign of, of Brandon and, and Torin. And in their independence, they weren't properly supporting the wall. So Alessand's like, all right, I'll do it. You know, yeah. if you guys, have, if, if they had some better idea, they could have done it, but they didn't. Anyway, so Alaric's married to a Mormont woman who had died before Alessand came to visit. So she didn't meet her. She was some total badass who drove off a wolf pack at age 12 with an axe and killed two of them and made a cloak out of it. Unfortunately, we don't know her name. We don't know the son's names either. We do know the daughter's name, which is kind of unusual. <laughs> Usually the, the daughters are left out of history or the wives sometimes are, but the sons were left out this time and the wife. But we know Alara Stark. She became a lady-in-waiting to Alessand. They, they hit it off. They actually became a friend, not just a lady-in-waiting. It says they became a close friend. Nina writes, Alara Stark is a weird case to me in that she seems like she should have been important, but we never hear about her again after she goes south with Queen Alessand. Wouldn't Alara, a Stark woman literally serving at the right hand of a Targaryen queen in the capital, the sister to those possibly discontented sons of Alaric, have been a natural point of focus in this tension over the new gift? She could have been between, you know, someone that could have maybe helped tamper down. Maybe she did, and we just don't hear about it. Nina writes also, did Alara like the Targaryens after serving Alysanne for a long time? Or maybe she resented being away from Winterfell, maybe like Sansa. She liked being at court. She thought, court was nice and preferred it to Winterfell or maybe she thought she'd like it <laughs> like Sansa and turned out to not after a while. <laughs> now, Alysanne and Jaehaerys' court is much better than Robert and Cersei's, so we can't compare that over much. But still, it still could have been a case of thinking you're going to like it and then realizing, I hate the South. Would Alysanne have arranged a marriage for Alara specifically to warn the Starks to not make trouble because it's, she could be kind of a hostage, you know, like read between the lines sort of scenario or like, yeah, not really threatening her, but hey, we've got the dragons and we've got your sister. Like, what are you going to do? Maybe Alara dissuaded her brothers from these thoughts of, of trying to regain their independence. Maybe, yeah, maybe she was a source of... Maybe that added to their resentment. Maybe they, they felt have. like their sister was taken from them. Good point, because remember what happened with Torrin's sons. They refused to attend that forced wedding between that Rhaenys and Rhaenys arranged between Ronald and their, their sister. Yeah, did Alara just stay at court? Did she ever get married? Our, we have to think that she died early. Uh, the shivers came around the year 59 or 60, and it came during winter, and a lot of people died. She came to court like immediately before the shivers, so it's a pretty simple answer that she was one of the casualties of the shivers. And that's something that the Targaryens wouldn't get the blame for. They would be like, oh, you brought your, uh, our sister, our daughter to your to court and she died under your care. Like if half the court died, which uh, maybe not quite half the court died, but a lot of people died. I mean, Daenerys, the firstborn of Jaehaerys and Alysanne died of the shivers. So it still might not be fair or direct blame, but it still might create resentment. Yeah, because if she hadn't gone south, it wouldn't have happened. Like the shivers yeah. didn't go to Winterfell as far as we know. It was mostly struck ports and, you know, the places with higher traffic and denser populations. Yes. So it, it's still possible she would have gotten it up there. But I totally agree with you that this is the kind of resentment you could get from they could still blame them for that. Like this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't done that. 
Now, yeah, because we don't actually know how bad the shivers hit the north, but we know, but we do know that King's Landing was hit the hardest. Yes, yeah, so it, it's pretty strong headcanon, especially because we don't hear from her after that, and some sort of marriage would have made sense. Of course, it's possible she married and had no kids, which is often a reason to fall off the historical record when you are important and or from an important family. This is before Alisan came up. The North saw Dreamfire. You would have seen Dreamfire the dragon because Reyna was searching for Erea all throughout Westra, searching for Erea and Balerion. And her wide net of travel took her eventually to the Barrowlands, along the Fever River, maybe other places in the north. What a strange thing. You're a northerner, you know, I don't know, you're hunting or farming and just look up and... Is that a dragon? <laughs> Am I seeing that? Did I just see that? <laughs> like, like, you didn't see a dragon. Come on, man. You're just talking. You're telling stories. Were you drinking again? <laughs> were, you, <laughs> were you smoking the werewood? <laughs> <laughs> what a strange thing. You're just like walking along like, what? what? <laughs> it's a big old blue dragon up there. What the hell? There were two winters pretty close together. Alisanne timed it really well. She went up there in 58. There was winter, right, like in the year at the end of 56, beginning of 57, and then again in 59-60. And it was exceptionally cruel. And that's when the shivers hit. So that was just really, really bad. One good thing about the shivers is it caused a proliferation of cats because it became known that the shivers was transmitted by rats. And so people were like, ah, bring in the cats. We got the rats bringing the cats, and the cats just stayed <laughs> afterwards because the was like, yeah, well, we like these cats and we don't want the rats to come back. Cats are good. You would think there would be a decent number of cats in the north given how much they got to store grain for the winter and <laughs> for the long winters, like there would be a lot of rats haunting those granaries, <laughs> those multi-year granaries. But that's a whole other story. In 58, that was the 10-year anniversary of Jaehaerys and Alisanne's marriage. So by the time Jaehaerys got there, and had his chat with Alaric, and they talked about the death of his brother and all that. They went to a tournament in Barrowton, which was held in their honor. Alaric's sons went, Alara went, Seymour Manderly went, and so it was a big event. Not as big as the tournaments of the South, but it was a pretty big deal. The document, you called this the 10-year tourney. Now, this is a 10-year anniversary, not a 10-year-long tourney. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's a really big bracket of nights. Yeah, it took a long time to serve this tournament. Yeah, some people died during it, not because of it, just, <laughs> just past of old age. You know? <laughs> so let, that takes us to House Manderley. Very important. As usual, House Manderley is the place where the North and South have their joining point. So Lord Theomore was a pretty powerful guy. And he had a, quote, famously large family, which I'm not sure what context they mean. Because <laughs> there's the Manderleys are famously large. This isn't just a modern day Manderley thing of being overweight uh, or big boned or just burly. There are lots of big Manderleys throughout history. It seems to be like a genetic thing. So when, he's, when she says famously large, I think it means both they're big people and there's a lot of them. Quantity and quality. Yes, both quantity. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're very capable, too. Here's a quote that shows the what Alisanne was thinking when she came upon House Manderley. Alisanne Targaryen, ever desirous of binding the seven kingdoms closer together, saw an opportunity in Lord Theomor's famously large family and promptly set about arranging marriages. By the time she took her leave, 
two of her ladies-in-waiting had been betrothed to his lordship's younger sons and a third to a nephew. His eldest daughter and three nieces, meanwhile, had been added to the queen's own party with the understanding that they would travel south with her and there be pledged to suitable lords and knights of the king's court. Sadly, some of them would have died of the shivers too because this is, timing was pretty bad as it turned out. Obviously not Alicent's fault. But she even had a lady-in-waiting lady in waiting <laughs> among the Manderleys prior to this. So she was already well in contact with them. She held her women's court there. And this is when John Keel Dark, the Scarlet Shadow, became known to her. She dueled a, a wildling woman who was a prisoner taken on a raid or by a raid. And... This was a you know exhibition match, and everybody was impressed. Here's something that that impacts a song of ice and fire. When Silverwing was in White Harbor, so many people showed up to view to see the dragon to catch a glimpse. I mean, why wouldn't you? I would go, right? You want to see the dragon? Lord Theomore was like, "Wow, I didn't know this many people lived in my city." The reason that's ominous for a song of ice and fire is winter's coming to the north, and White Harbor <laughs> is. I mean, winter, maybe the White Walkers. Like, how are they going to feed all these people? If there's more people than they think, then they're going to need... Population that big is going to be hard to take care of yes. when winter comes. Yeah, so it's, it's a pretty straightforward problem, I, I think. At least it could be. That, I feel like, is a, a subtle but very meaningful detail that it's hard. I mean, they don't do what they, they don't do censuses in this era, I don't think. You know, like, we, we take that kind of thing for granted, I think, that we have a decent idea of how many people live, not just in, in this country, but... Most countries, almost all countries, really, maybe even all countries. I don't know how good some of the censuses are in other places, but we, they do at least have numbers. I don't know how accurate they are. But there would be no such thing in places like this. The type of census they do in this time would more, be more about borders and less about total population. They would get an idea of how much they have, like, but for different reasons. They would want to know like, what kind of, how many fighting men do they have and things like that. What? kind of taxes can we collect? Yes, yes, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Because otherwise, the tax collectors are pocketing too much of it. They know they're doing some of that anyway. They just need to keep, they need to keep it under, <laughs> under control. <laughs> We're pretty much done now with Alisan in the North. You can see a lot of changes just from her visit. She changed how people behaved in White Harbor. She changed the North and how it behaves with the wall. She built castles. There were statues made in her honor. She arranged marriages. She ended first night. That might be the greatest thing of all that she did, most important thing of all, but a lot of positive things. And talk about this being just a, a bellwether of the general change that's been happening over the last 60 years since Aegon's conquest. Cultural change over 60 years is rapid. That's rapid when you're talking about a thing that's been kind of static for 8,000 years. Like 60 years sounds like a lot, but it's not when you put it in that context. But as we alluded to last time, the change gets even bigger because of the King's Road. Talk about bringing the realm even closer together, having roads that make it possible for much frequent and greater amounts of traffic to go north and come back. For traders in the north to make the journey by road instead of just going, staying in the north only or whatever they were doing. So there's a big, big, big difference to that. I know we talked about it last time, Sean, but do you have anything... Any new thoughts on the, what a huge deal it would be for roads to joining like just the riverlands to the north, let alone the fact that those roads eventually lead all the way into Dorne and, and all the way to the west and, and everything like that? 
Yeah, the King's Road, not only does it give connection from the North to the Southern Kingdoms and the Southern Kingdoms to the North, but even within the North, the North itself is really big. Yeah, you're right. And so a central road that travels through it, it enables travel from Winterfell to the Wall more quickly and vice versa and all sorts of trade. Food is perishable. Food is something we kind of take for granted now that we can just any time of year, we can get pears or lasagna or sushi or whatever, you know, these things would have been rare delicacies even in a certain part of the world for a certain season. Now we just always get it all the time. That's true. So the ability just for someone to transport, you know, like onions from one part of the North to the next might have just been impossible. By the time you like harvest it and put it on a cart and drive it three months away, it's already not good anymore. But now you can do it in a week. The things that weren't even possible become easy relatively. And so the amount of trade, the number of people who aren't facing starvation, the amount of books that are going to be spread and read, the amount of perspectives from different lands, farming techniques, even like, oh, how'd you grow your onions? All this type of stuff. It's hard to know. It's hard to measure how much an impact a road can have. What a big part of American history was just having railroads connect across the country. How much being able to get the goods across and the new jobs that opened up. And I mean, obviously some negative stuff can come with that or whatever, but, but generally speaking, it's a big boon. To, to society, to knowledge, to wealth, to stability, to trade is kind of wrapped up in all that. It's huge. It's hard to know. It's really hard to measure how valuable that is. Yeah, I think like one example we could think of, another one of the real world from a lower tech era is like the Roman roads. It's something we hear about a lot when you're like learning about history. It's like how big a deal, what an advantage that was for Rome and what it was one of the things that made Roman conquest a lot more tolerable as they would come in and actually build a lot of infrastructure, which is not usually what conquerors do. It was one of the things is like Roman conquest is still not great because they enslave like half of everybody. But at least several generations later, there's some good <laughs> because they built things and, that are useful. And it makes it last longer too, yeah, right? They true. don't just yeah. come in and pillage and leave. They come in and build a road. And now people from not just Rome, but other areas nearby can suddenly travel there and, and trade goods and knowledge and everything. Yeah. Nina writes, beyond that, the direction of the Kingsguard in the north might have also been a symbolic gesture by the Targaryens by literally linking the relatively new capital of the Targaryens with Castle Black, not just Winterfell, the seat of the oldest and most fundamental of the pan-Westerosi institutions. Jaehaerys underlined the permanence of the Targaryen dynasty. The city that Aegon the Conqueror had founded was an equal, not simply to the ancient citadels of the Starks and Durandans, but to the heart of the institution that preceded even the old Westerosi kingdoms. Two, while Winterfell might be an important stop on the King's Road, the extension of the road to the wall demonstrated that it was only a stop, just as the authority of the Cargarian crown superseded the local power of its former, formerly royal vassals, so would the King's Road transect the realms of these former kings, stretching to the borders Aegon himself had determined. Very well said, Nina. That's excellent. Totally agree with that. It does also show their level of authority. It's like, yes, the presence of the Targaryens is here in a way that, like we just discussed, Sean, adds to the, it makes it better. It's clearly a benefit. Even from the lowest peasant to the highest lord, this road is useful. <laughs> it helps us, it binds us, it makes us money. Bring, yeah, it's all good. I would think Roderick Dustin, Roddy the Ruin, was born around this time, around the early 70s, late 60s. He's going to be an important figure in the Dance of the Dragon. He's old by that time. He's a, a, a hoary old warrior, they say. I also kind of wonder what wars he fought in. <laughs> which is something we'll be keeping an eye on as we move forward, because how did he get his battle experience in his time of relative peace? Well, it must have been something. 
Jason Concepcion sends a super chat uh, pair sticker. Thank you. That's the Jason Concepcion. The Jason. <laughs> the Jason. Yeah. Hey, Jason, Jason. Good to hear from you, buddy. <laughs> That's Indeed. awesome. Shout out we're to X-Ray to, Vision Pod. We're going to get to see Jason in a few weeks. Uh, in Los Angeles for the GodCon. I'm very excited to see him. Yeah, he is helping run it there. Like head head dude over there for the... Yeah, that's his title. Head, head dude. dude over there. Yeah. H-D-O-T. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so him and Greta, his co-host on the official Game of Thrones podcast, are like basically the MCs of the whole event there. So that's cool. We still have several Stark Lords left. But in the meantime, we have some words from some sponsors here. Well, I've talked about NordVPN several times here. Our sign-up code is nordvpn.com slash thrones. Get a big discount, plus four months for free. I thought today I would tell y'all a little bit about how it actually works, the technology behind it and what's going on, because I think that's kind of interesting. It helps explain why it's valuable and why it can save you money or save you things, save you from things like identity theft. Your computer has an address, an IP address, it's called. Every device has one. When you browse the internet, that address is out there. It's visible to servers and certain other individuals who may or may not be watching. It's certainly visible to the companies that you are perusing. Here's one I didn't know about till yesterday. I was looking up things that companies do to charge you more money. They will target and upcharge you based on your neighborhood. If you live in a certain neighborhood, they will add a surcharge or like 10, 15, $20, maybe a small percentage based on where you live. That was a new one for me because I knew that it was country organized. Like we used an example a few weeks ago of if you use a VPN, you can sign up for like Netflix through a different country and get that country's prices. That feels like getting around something. It's legal, but this is more like stopping people from overcharging you based on things they've learned about you. They're looking at your data and using it against you. So the way it works, the technology of a VPN is that you're not connecting through your address, you're connecting through the VPN's address, but the VPN has thousands of addresses and they're constantly deleting and adding new ones. That's how anonymity is gained through a VPN network. VPN stands for virtual private network. So your address is masked by being one of theirs. So that's how it can get around things like throttling, like your local ISP can slow you down because they see you as a regular user and not a business. They may give priority. One of the many things that a VPN can do for you is get rid of that sort of customer sorting where they put you in a bin based on where you live and how important you are to them and all this other nonsense that they use against you. Oh, Sean, I'll put you in a bin and tell you how not important you are. (laughs) (laughs) The feeling. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Give me that VPN. <laughs> One small downside to VPNs, if we're being open here, is it can occasionally slow down your service just a little bit. But that can be, it can actually end up making it faster, though, if you're being throttled. And NordVPN is the fastest VPN in the world. So whatever small amount of speed loss you get, well, NordVPNs is the, is the least of that. So that's great. So once again, NordVPN.com slash thrones. Get a huge discount and four months for free. 30-day money-back guarantee. That's the deal. Check it out. Save some money. Also, our friends over at Smile Brilliant have become a sponsor for us. And this is really interesting. Look, Sean is smiling brilliantly right now. (laughs) I have... This is something I've been interested in in the past is teeth whitening. And it's a really interesting science because I'm on camera sometimes 
once a week, roughly. Yeah, I was like, I care about all the time. I care about what I look like. You know, I'm, I want to, I'm not like overly concerned with my appearance. But I don't want to like get random people commenting saying, look at that dude. He looks, I catch him looking ugly. in the mirror all the time. Yeah. Look, I'm so vain. <laughs> <laughs> I probably think this ad is about me. <laughs> <laughs> so smile brilliant. This is another thing I like from sponsors when they take the time to explain the science or the process behind things that enables me to explain it to y'all. And then I feel like <laughs> this, this, you're actually getting something. Even if you don't buy the product, you understand something new. LED lights are a common way to accelerate teeth whitening processes. They don't actually whiten the teeth. They just accelerate it. So that's kind of scammy. All it is is shortening the session that you would go in for teeth whitening. It doesn't actually make it better. It just shortens the session. And it makes your teeth more sensitive, especially if the LED lights are not used properly. And a lot of these places are not... The people there aren't trained very well. They're not dentists that, that administer some of these things. Strips are kind of the same thing. A lot of strips are just, you do it yourself. You're not a dentist. Sorry, but you're not. I mean, well, some of you are. <laughs> a couple yeah, of you listening are. My bad. <laughs> but most of us aren't. And the thing with those is they neglect the gum lines. You just get, you miss spots. Like they don't get everything. They miss the gums. They miss crevices. They miss some of the molars. They work, but the parts they miss, what happens when you have a stain that you get rid of half of it? It makes the other stain, the remaining part look bigger because you've just whitened everything else. So that's bad. You know, you brought up LED lights and, and, and tooth whitening. Yeah. I think if you just like put the LED lights on your teeth, <laughs> then you're really lightening your teeth up. It's like little <laughs> gems you can apply like a little light. Well, we need a sponsor that's selling grills one of these days and we'll... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> LED grills. Yeah, but. LED grills. That's what I'm thinking. your teeth. And Talk about a brilliant smile. Like when yeah. you, like light emits. Yeah, that's, now that's brilliant. <laughs> charcoal is another one that people use to whiten teeth, but charcoal is really abrasive. It wears down teeth enamels. So that's a really bad long-term solution. Whitening toothpaste is okay, but it only works on surface stains. It doesn't get, it doesn't do deep cleaning. And it's also like charcoal. Sometimes it has charcoal in it, a lot of whitening toothpaste. So it's abrasive and can wear down enamel. So that's short-term good, long-term bad. It will make it worse in the long-term. So what does work, apparently the number one product recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted tray. Like it's, it's an orthodontic thing in a lot of ways. Dispensed, it used to be a very expensive. Only dentists would sell these. It would cost $300 to $1,000. But that changed more than 10 years ago when Smile Brilliant came up with the innovative LabDirect process. So head over to smilebrilliant.com, get a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray or night guard if you grind your teeth. I used to grind my teeth and night guard did help me. I got over that, thankfully. They also have a whole suite of professional oral care products such as an electric toothbrush, water flosser, dental probiotics, all the standard things you would use for teeth care made by people that are connected to dentists. So freshen your breath and look great with Westeros, that's the code. Save 20% with the code Westeros. If there's a site-wide sale, use the code Westeros5 and it will make the sale bigger. Like right now, they have a Black Friday sale. It's a big, 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 big sale. Westeros5 will make it even bigger. Sounds like a superhero team. <laughs> superhero five. team. That's right. <laughs> Westeros5. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Edric Stark. There's a much shorter reign. We don't know as nearly as much about him, but it, it continues a few of the same things here. Uh, grandson of Alaric. As we said, we didn't know the sons of Alaric's names, but one of the grandsons took over. We're not sure whether it was the younger of Alaric's or older of, of Alaric's sons that, that was Edric's father or how they died, but it could have been the Shivers. Again, we don't hear about the Shivers hitting the North, but it probably did, especially because there's no guarantee that they were in the North. You could have, could have been traveling somewhere when the Shivers hit. Who knows? You know, There's no guarantee that people are at home when these things happen. 
Somewhere in the late 70s or so, which again, this is what, what era we're in, 70-ish AC, this is when the sea snake, Corlys Velaryon, before he had the nickname Sea Snake, <laughs> so he would have just been Corlys Lord, or just Sir Corlys at this time, he wasn't Lord yet, he took his ship, the Ice Wolf, to Eastwatch by the Sea and Hardhome, and then tried to find a north northern passage through, like, going, like, around that, what would have, what presumably there's some sort of Arctic Circle up there. He tried to find a way through all that. This is some of the stuff we would see in the Sea Snake prequel show. Yeah, so imagine that would be awesome. Like, if seeing, like, this icy landscapes and ship trying to find its way. Yeah, that just sounds really cool. It might end up being kind of anticlimactic, though, right? Yeah, because they, they don't find anything, yeah. <laughs> yeah it doesn't to, get anywhere, yeah. have to find something. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It'd be a, a tragic series of episodes. <laughs> yeah. So he found only ice, unsurprisingly, yeah. So it comes back, and his career continues elsewhere, kind of outside the scope of, of this episode, but the part in the North we wanted to mention. Circa 73... Lucamore the Lusty is sent to the wall with two of his sons. That's the Kingsguard that had three wives and 16 children, which, of course, as a Kingsguard, not supposed to do that. <laughs> Lucamore Strong, sent to the wall. So two other strong boys up there. Who knows what happened to them? Joe Magician has some theories, though. You can check that out. We don't know much about Edric Stark, but this is the first reign where the effect of the King's Road would really be felt because the King's Road probably wasn't done until the end of Alaric's reign, if that. It may not have been finished even during Alaric's reign. It was a very long project. Jaehaerys was still like talking about it 20 years later. He's still like, I'm still building roads, man. I'm still working on my roads. It would have gone a lot faster if they used a dragon. <laughs> Just saying. You're totally right. <laughs> Carve a path right through. <laughs> Nina says, if Edric Stark might have been feeling resentful toward the Targaryens for the new gift, then I could see where the King's Road may have helped exacerbate that resentment among the Starks. After all, the King's Road runs directly between Winterfell and King's Landing, a physical embodiment of the relatively new political links between the Starks and Targaryens. Not only would the Starks now, perhaps, be expected to travel more frequently to King's Landing for regular renderings of homage and bend the knee or just show up and do some FaceTime. But should the tax paying tax paying, sure. <laughs> Maybe they could send other people to do that. But still, either way, their, their, their presence or indirect presence would be required from time to time. But should the Starks raise trouble or outright rebel, then, well, the Targaryens would have an easier time marching their army up there. The, the road does have a downside for anyone who's independence-minded <laughs> because, yeah, the armies could march to your border quicker. And, well, uh, yes, they have Moat Kalen to help them, but uh, Moat Kalen's all that great against dragons. So, mm, yeah, it's great against armies, but, yeah. So, that's the thing. The North would be even more joined to the rest of the realm. Is this joining, this trade arrangements, this long-standing... We talked about it a lot, Sean, last time with the, the building of the arrangements, the olive tree example. of Once these arrangements are made, they start to pay off, and over the long term, it just builds and builds and builds. This is the beginning of what became the long term. Far more merchants and travelers finding it possible, more exports and imports, the other countries learning about what the North has to offer. Hey, we like this, actually. Let's buy more and more, more and more of this. <laughs> And vice versa. The North is learning about other things that are out there that they can buy, the things that can actually be shipped. Like you said, Sean, now it's feasible to ship them because they don't rot before they get there. Or, you know, if they're coming by ship, that was probably already possible. But if it's coming by road, mm, that's the real change. And something like lumber, like how do you possibly transport any significant amount of timber through woods and forests, across rivers, da-da-da? Usually when float the road? Them. Yeah. 
Yeah, when there's a road, you suddenly just, it enables things that were just impossible before. And th- things that were tough become easy. Things that were impossible become doable. And it has huge impacts on the quality of lives of people, basically. Like, have you seen ever, if, if any of y'all have ever seen or even tried to watch the show Deadwood? Maybe you, you don't have to have seen a lot of it. If you saw like the first scene, you see that there's a large wagon train going into Deadwood and one wagon has a problem and all the wagons behind it are stuck for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. You have paths that are just made over time by people using them, just following the same route, and they the, the tracks get made. Well, it gets muddy, and a cart gets stuck, and then the same thing happens. Well, that's not going to happen on a stone road. <laughs> people can just to... keep on going. Well, it can, but it's like a road wide enough for two carts yeah. or whatever. I'm just thinking about the evergreen and the canal and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or yeah, you got a big giant ship in, a, in the Suez Canal that just blocks everything. Yeah, that was... <laughs> It takes a much larger ship in modern times to block everything. <laughs> Instead of just a wagon, you need like, like a, yeah. a cargo ship capable of carrying literally like <laughs> a whole neighborhood's worth of goods. <laughs> <laughs> Back to House Manderley in the time of Edric Stark. Lord Theomore was still alive, but he had outlived four wives. Alsan, maybe not one of her better arranged marriages, was going to marry her very young daughter, Vicera, to him. But she died in the year 87 in a drunk driving accident. Yes, the Westeros equivalent of drunk driving. She was racing her horse on stone roads and her horse threw her and she went into a wall head first. Yes, very bad. But Theomor surely did not forget that he was promised a Targaryen bride. And future Manderleys will bring this up. <laughs> and we're like, hey, we were promised a Targaryen princess. Yeah, I'm gonna bring that back around again. Do y'all have any? Got any more of them Targaryen princesses? <laughs> a little untitled. Were they? What were they <laughs> offering up for this guaranteed bride? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Nina writes. It's interesting to me that Jaehaerys and Alysanne decide on Theomor Manderly as Viserys' intended husband instead of one of his sons or grandsons. Right? Yeah, that seems to have made more sense. If Theomor was at least in his mid to late fifties and may have been older. By 87 AC, I doubt he would have lived for a very long time after the marriage. So it is, it is a little odd. But perhaps all those other kids were married already. Who knows? Maybe they already had brides. She says maybe leaving Visera, a young widow with small children, would have made her the decision maker. Maybe they were thinking that marrying a young woman to an old lord, when the old lord dies, she'll get to be the dowager lord, basically the lady, kind of like a Lysa situation or a Lady Dustin type situation, maybe. And that maybe they're maybe they're being a little sneaky there. Probably not, but that's possible. Nina also writes, with a new Manderly government come new decision makers, people who might not have taken kindly to Papa or Grandpapa Manderly, whoever they were, to this young wife. They might not appreciate that. So that might have caused some tension. They may not have, but they didn't seem to debate Edric Stark or the sons of Alaric as as possible. Maybe they were already married by then. Coming back to Roderick Dustin for a minute, maybe he fought in some of these many battles the Night's Watch was fighting with the resurgent free folk who were testing the wall in this era of Targaryen-fed manpower loss of the wall. So that's entirely possible. Also, slave raiders and pirates are still a thing. Those, Those occasionally hit the North. Ironborn as well are possible, but they weren't very active at this time. And maybe he went overseas. You can only, there's people, he sold, sold his sword overseas somewhere. Uh, after all, there was, we were talking about Roderick Dustin. There was Roderick Stark, who joined the Second Sons. Stark to go overseas, Company of the Rose. Maybe he still existed at this point. Maybe he went to fight with them for a while. 
lots of possibilities for where he could have fought that isn't necessarily in Westeros. And, and also isn't necessarily like war or even a major battle. I can, I'm thinking about like in Duncan Egg, just the little skirmish than Duncan forgetting all the names. In the second book, the guy who wanted to marry the girl himself and he you know, ended up fighting Dunk and on, on the river. Oh, Lo- Lucas Longinch. Long, yeah, that battle that happened, you know, that whole thing there that probably doesn't get recorded in many history books, right? True, but, yeah. but still someone, you know, got some experience there That's and might have been witnessed and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, he could have fought duels. Yeah, maybe he just won some, won a melee here or there. Yeah, you, you never know. There's probably a lot of different things. He definitely had a rep. It wasn't just one or two battles, probably. So that's really all we have on Edric. Let's talk about Ellard, who is next. Another E name, Stark. Gone a while without a Brandon. There are probably some, some younger Brandons that just didn't inherit. <laughs> there's always a Brandon or two around. We got to assume there's some Brandons here. There may have been someone between Ellard and Edric. This is where there's enough room that the history may not be complete. So it's entirely possible that we're missing a Stark here. So this is where our count, where we call him the Eighth Lord, might be wrong. It's even possible there are two in there. You never know. Like, you could always have a guy who ruled for two days and just died, and, well, that's, that was over quick. But as best as we know, he was the Eighth Lord. Did the North have maesters? Yes. Was that something? Definitely. It, okay. Yeah. For how long? I, I assume it... Well, there were maesters with it, Torin when he knelt to Aegon. So okay, yeah. they've been there for a while. It's just a, it's kind of a cultural thing. Like you're not a high lord if you don't have a maester. Because it's just like only the best, only like the lower level lords don't have maesters. So it's like up to a certain point, you deserve a maester. And over time, the use of the value of a maester is such that few lords would shun that. Only like the Ironborn occasionally yeah. <laughs> shun Pop that. Propaganda sort of campaign from the maesters to make that a, <laughs> a very prestigious thing to Effective. have a maester. Yeah, <laughs> smart. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of other things that separate the north from the rest of the southern kingdoms. Yeah. And I, interesting that that doesn't. That, yeah. That they also have this value and tradition in maesters. Yeah. It, it made me wonder, though, if it might be a reason why we have some holes in their history, you know, that maybe they didn't have quite the same record keeping or concern with point. it. You know? The records may just be up there still. They may have, or some of them got, got burned when the Winterfell's library got burned. No. Yeah. Hopefully that's not the only place they were. So one of the reasons we suspect that maybe Ellard was not immediately after Edric is that Ellard was the Lord who went to the Great Council in 101 to decide who would become Jaehaerys' heir, the one that we saw at the actual first scene of House of the Dragon. He supported Rhaenys at first, the queen who never was, then her son Laenor, then eventually Viserys was chosen and they bent the knee like everybody else. Manderly and Dustin followed Stark on this. They both also supported Rhaenys, then Laenor, and then accepted the decision of Viserys when Viserys won. It's suggested by Yandel that they supported Laenor and Rhaenys because they were still mad about the new gift. They wanted someone maybe that would either reverse that or just they sided with the cadet branch, the more Valarian side of things because they were farther connected, farther distance from Jaehaerys' main line. But the Blackwoods also supported Rhaenys and Laenor. So maybe just the old gods side, I mean, they, just, they all were of one mind about this. It's not clear why, but they were all on the same side. So that's interesting. Nina suggests maybe that if the Stark saw Jaehaerys I as the architect of the new gift, then they decided not to support his candidate, rather the son of his named heir. Because remember, Viserys was the son of Balon, who was who 
the natural second born of Jaehaerys and Alessand, well, the natural second heir anyway. Whereas Rhaenys was, was the one that they would normally pass over because they pass over women. So maybe they were trying to push back against that somehow. And wanted to see a different style of inheritance laws be respected. Regardless, where Aegon I had agreed to leave the old laws and prerogatives intact, Jaehaerys had appropriated northern lands to give to the Watch with no more justification than the king's words. Again, there's just a lot of ways to see how the North could have looked at this and been like, we want to pick someone who's not going to take away our rights. Jaehaerys also is the one who took away First Night, things like that. There's maybe some other bitterness over that. We're not clear how that was received, as we said, but there's some of them would have hated it. Some of them may have been like, good, <laughs> but not entirely clear. By the time the Great Council of 101 came along, that's a lot of different things that the Targaryens had ordered or forced on the North. Roads, the change of the first night, the changes to the wall, new castles, marriages to the Manderleys. There's lots of little things that it adds up, right? And they might think, like, this is too much. Too much South in our North. <laughs> Let's vote for the ones who we think are going to be less, more detached from us, less, more South-focused, and maybe keep them out of our business. But that didn't happen. What have the Targaryens ever done for us? <laughs> Aside from the roads and the aqueducts. <laughs> Still one of my favorite movies of all time. Monty Python <laughs> and the Meaning of Life. Yes, watch that. No, that's The Life of Brian. Oh, right. Yeah, Life of Brian. Yes, of course. Easy to mix that up. Yeah, I, I'll still the same. My, my point stands. Still one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Molo says, what if the Targaryen king confided in Torin about the prophecy and then they formed a pact because they realized their common goal? Yeah, you know, this is something we may have to spend a whole episode on. There's so many variations on this idea on who brought it up. Like, do you know anything about a prophecy? Do you know about a prophecy? Oh, we both know about a prophecy. Yeah, like I'm, I'm a little skeptical that Aegon brought it up. Maybe Torin did. He'd be like, this is why we can't bend the knee because we have other considerations. And on the other hand, apparently Torin didn't meet Aegon face to face. And that would mean that like Brandon Snow, his bastard brother would have been the one to bring it up. So, hmm. anything to add, Sean? This is this is a big mystery to me. I, I, it's such a new concept, which I love. It's a, it's something new. Only within the last like few months, we've had to think about this. Yeah, I remember when that moment happened in the show, thinking this is going to send everyone back to the books. This oh, is going to yeah. send everyone to start reevaluating things. For example, I've I made the point many times that I feel like the Viserys or the Tar- Tar- Targaryens, or whatever, should have told at least a few more people. They should have just hedge their bets against what if someone randomly dies on their horse, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Uh, just a couple people just for backup. And, and, and you know, I, I might make an argument for telling a lot of people just to like, I don't know, make more of a mission to garner more support to shift the gears of what people are concerned about rather than like your personal glory or your ascending the throne to this bigger picture commitment we have to all of humanity or something. But so all I said, I wonder if maybe the Starks did. Maybe the Starks did mm-hmm. tell... Any potential error, which still would limit it to like four people or something, you know? Yeah. But that might be enough that Brandon Snow might have known when he went to talk to, to Aegon. So Absolutely. I'm not sure, but I got to at least consider it. But then I kind of reevaluate when it seems like Aegon or whatever Targaryens and Starks weren't really maintaining the wall very well, you know? <laughs> I feel like they... But just because they do know this prophecy... And maybe even feel like it's important. They still might not properly act on it. They might. They're still torn between day to day goals. Like I don't know. I'm. I'm, I'm tr- I don't know if this is the best analogy, but on some level, I bet politicians are worried about the national debt, but they're also worried about education and the war in Ukraine and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to juggle it. And so the, 
the more existential long-term things, a lot of times... That's the one you can set get aside, yeah. Concern, yeah. Like climate so. change. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that can keep getting kicked down the curve, huh? It d- definitely bears further thought. I've been thinking about it off and on ever since we learned. Like you said, Sean, you're causing people to rethink everything. You're totally right. Me among them. And just the, the idea... We, and we have to keep it separate because there's two versions of it. The book version of this is what we're trying to be focused on right here. There's no dagger. So Aegon would have relied on other means for this to be passed down. It wasn't the dagger. So yeah, word of mouth is entirely possible. Maybe some things were written down. After all, Rhaegar supposedly discovered a prophecy that says, I must be a warrior. And maybe that was written down by Aegon. Who, he doesn't, we don't know who wrote that down. But maybe he was just rediscovering the same thing Aegon had discovered on his own. But it could have been more direct. Maybe it was written down by Torn Stark and Lyanna <laughs> showed him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, yeah, there's, there's a lot of possibilities there. This is, this is a core mystery of the series still, one that George is, is keeping partly close to the chest, but we'll do our best to, to figure out what he's hiding. Moving on to Lord number nine of Winterfell, Benjen Stark marries Lysa Locke, which is funny, not because he married Lysa Locke, but because this was like the shortest ruled Lord besides Walton. Ellard was Lord in 101, and Rickon is Lord in 105. Benjen was Lord in between there. <laughs> his, whole, his whole reign was squeezed into a four-year span that probably included part of Ellard and Benjen's, or part of Rickon's as well. So he, he may have only been like one or two years, maybe even less. Four years is the absolute, absolute maximum, but very unlikely. It doesn't mean he had a short life, necessarily, although he quite possibly did. He just may have been old when he inherited. I'm not entirely clear. What's funny about him marrying Lysa Locke is that we mostly don't have the names of the ladies of Winterfell throughout this era. But for some reason, we have her name, even though this was one of the briefest, least important lords. <laughs> and we don't know anything more about Lysa Locke other than her name. So it's not like he gave, George gave us the name because she did something. No, just like this is, happens to be one of the few ladies of Winterfell whose name we have. Nina says, I wonder if Benjen was supposed to have been a descendant of Alaric's second son, whereas Ellard would have been from his first son. So ni- maybe neither of them. Yeah, that, that could work. I could see that. That would explain why he was older or would fit with the idea that he may have been older. She also writes, that might explain why he was thrust into this role of heir by the death of a childless cousin rather than inheriting from his father. So given such a short Rain. There's not much to say there. We may have been one or two years during a time of relative peace. This was after the Great Council, but before Viserys actually became king. Rickon Stark. Rickon, Rickon. Rickon, 10th Lord. This is the one who we actually saw on TV bend the knee to Rhaenyra when she was named Viserys' heir, so 105 AC. This is Benjen's eldest son. He had another son named Bernard. Bernard is going to be important in a moment here. Rickon was married to Gillianne Glover. So there's another Lady Stark whose name we get. Glovers, of course, are the ones from Deepwood Mott. That's the castle that Asha took for a while there, the one that we actually have some chapters in. She took their people hostage. Cregan was born in the year 108. The very important Cregan Stark, son of Rickon. Another son was born to Rickon a few years later, but he died in 119. Cregan will later say that a certain young Targaryen reminds him of his, be- of his dead brother. Cregan also has a sister, Rickon's d- bastard daughter, Sarah Snow. And uh, she would have been born in 
the reign of Rickon, maybe? Supposed bastard daughter. Supposed bastard. That's true. That's, Some that's people a, claim she yeah, doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which I think is interesting to have someone who people claim does not exist even. Yeah. Like that's unusual. Is, yeah, like obscure parentage is one thing, but like this person may not have been real. It's like yeah. they made a person up. Mm. Really? <laughs> or did the maesters just say that? Yeah, that's, that's odd. And in a relatively recent time period, right? This isn't like a thousand years ago, right? No, yes. yeah. Again, I mean, this is this is literally we're about to see Jaceres, we're about to see Jace go up to Winterfell and potentially meet if this Sarah Snow person exists. That's just what we're going to see in season two of House of the Dragon, whether she exists or not. Yeah. So Rickon may have attended the Blacks and Greens event. Probably did. It was a huge event. The event where the that became the name of the two factions. He may have also attended the wedding of Rainier and Lenor. That was such a big event. So it's entirely possible he made the trip for that. But entirely possible he didn't. I mean, the North is far away. No one's going to get overly mad at him if he doesn't come. It's not going to be like grounds for war. He may have been busy. He may have been winter time in the North. They have a lot more to do. He's got this nice new road to travel on. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Much more reasonable expectation than it would have been before. <laughs> yeah. So he dies in the year 121. Not a massively eventful reign that we know of. There's plenty of room for a lot of events that happened that weren't massively historical, but that were still important or really interesting. They were important in the context of the North, maybe not in context of all of Westeros. They might have also been too boring for the history books. We talked a lot about the impacts this road would have had. There would have been more trade and travel and probably production and tax collection. And he might have had to figure out how to manage all that. And it's, there's no like running into battle. It's not exciting stuff for the history books, but he might have done an outstanding job managing yeah. all that. You know? And as well, it's important to consider that this is, yeah, that, like if you consider the last few reigns we talked about, we got, we're about to get into Cregan's early reign. We got Rickon's reign. We've got Benjamin's reign. We've got Ellard's reign. All these reigns the narrative of fire and blood and the world of ice and fire is really focused on the blacks and the greens because it becomes such an important thing. It's such, and George, from a meta perspective, wanted to focus on it. So the narrative of the history books is less focused on the rest of the world at this point. There's just fewer stories from elsewhere. So it's kind of like one of those things where during, say, I don't know, the Roman civil war between Caesar and Pompey, Probably a lot of important things happened, but they were so much less important in that civil war that they're more likely to get forgotten. It's, it's important things that happen when other important things are happening can be swallowed up, lost in the shuffle. And I think that's a lot overshadowed. of what's Yeah, overshadowed. Yeah, great, great way to put it. So I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of that happening here in the sources. There's times where like the narratives really focuses on, say, the Sun Chaser, which is fascinating. But the Sun Chaser is like not even in Westeros. It's exploring like these new islands. And meanwhile, like there is stuff happening back in Westeros. And we do hear some of that. But it's like, he's not going to tell us every event everywhere at all times. Because that's just the book would be too big. It's already big. I mean, we would love that <laughs> if he did. <laughs> that would be amazing. But it's not very realistic. And real history books don't do that. You know, one of the books I would like to see the most uh, that gets into kind of other things like that is the When Women Ruled Ladies of the Aftermath oh, book. Oh, yeah. Which kind of just gets into your point about like some topics are beyond the purview of what Gildane wanted to cover or whatever in Fire and Blood. And it's a little too, too nitty gritty. He was trying to do a, yeah, like yeah, a larger scale. Like, yeah, more I mean, Gildane. I saw a meme that was like the Virgin Gildane versus the Chad Abalon. 
Widows. <laughs> it's like Babylon's <laughs> right. Like the, the book is just about widow regions. It's just a, it's just about the mundane lives of, of these women, which is <laughs> sounds fascinating. And, and certainly not a guy that like a, a, a maester who lives at the Citadel around no women would not is not the right choice to write a book about women. <laughs> you, know, you don't know much about women, man. You're not gonna, you're not the right call for this. It's like me, like it's like me writing a book about undersea biology. I don't know. What, what am I gonna, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> Mr. Abelon, more like Babelon. Oh! <laughs> Babylon. He's the best of the maesters, I think. No. Is that the fall of Babylon? Yes. <laughs> Let's see. When we're thinking about that, well, one of the things that I've started to think about more often with the, the rise of successor shows, the potential for successor shows, is what eras, what time periods, what places have fertile ground for stuff that happened that isn't well documented or isn't well known. And this area of the North, from like after the era of Alisan being there, I think while Alisan's there with Alaric, there's a lot to talk about her going around the North. Even then, though, there could be a lot more. I mean, there's all these other... What was happening at Barrowton then? What was happening with, at the Dreadfort? There's plenty of interesting things that could be going on. But this is an uninterrupted stretch of like 50 years from 70 to 120-ish, where the North had very little... Like, a Lord comes down to bend the knee to Rhaenyra and Viserys and attends a wedding here and there. But other than that... Not a whole lot. So there's a lot of room for new stories to be created either by George or HBO or whoever in this era. But when we get into Cregan, you get to you get back into where it's fairly well documented. And you also have really good stories, but they're <laughs> they're already written. Cregan Stark is a multi-episode guy. We're only talking about his life up to 129. And I'm not going to say how long his life is, even though a lot of you all already know, because we're trying to avoid fire and blood spoilers. But even just this early part is a fun story. It includes the dance of the direwolves. That's my invented title. Remember a minute ago, I mentioned Uncle Bernard, brother to Rickon, who becomes regent to Cregan when Rickon dies because Cregan was 13. We finally had a lord that was underage when it came time to inherit. Finally, gosh, yeah. it's too long. <laughs> Been waiting for an underage lord. <laughs> By the way, can I can I just point out Uncle Bernard? He's the Nard dog. <laughs> or the Nard wolf. <laughs> the Nard wolf. <laughs> Bernard was married to Margaret Carstark. Yeah, Margaret. We just got Margaret. You had a regular old name in there. It's not spelled different. It's not like a Y in there. Not like Margaret. It's just Margaret Carstark. So there you go. Did she have blue hair? <laughs> yes, Margaret <laughs> <Carstark>. <laughs> She thinks potatoes are neat. They really need Mr. Plow in the North, I tell you. So they had three kids too. Benj another Benjen, another Brandon, and an Elric. Yes. Benjen Bernard's Benjen, Brandon, and Elric with his wife Margaret. So when Cregan comes of age three years later in the year 124, Bernard is like, eh, let me let me hold on to this read to see a little bit longer. You're not quite ready. I'm gonna and he kind of keeps him at arm's length. And Cregan's like, Come on, man. Come on, uncle. That's not cool. But he, he's like, no, nah, let me keep doing this. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep being regent. A couple months go by. I'm going to stay being regent. Two years pass. Well, I'm going to keep being regent. <laughs> Cregan's like, no, this is, I can see how this is going. You're never going to let me have this, are you? So Cregan goes around, gets some support here and there. I'd like to think that someone like Roddy the Ruin was involved. Maybe this was some of his battle experience. Maybe some of these other lords that eventually get involved in the dance later. 
He gets some support and rises up and overthrows his uncle, throws Benjamin and Brandon and Elric all in jail. And we're not sure if it came to blood. It probably did. But maybe they just got enough support that Bernard was like, all right, never mind. We don't need, this doesn't need to come to blows because you have more men than me. But maybe, I mean, these are Starks. It could have gotten violent. They're not the type to back down. They're stubborn. He obviously thought he deserved to be Lord. So he might have been willing to enforce that belief with, with the sword. His best friend, Cregan's best friend is Lord Kerwin. And the Kerwins are the closest castle to Winterfell. So that was probably pretty crucial. He may have like been able to run next door and be like, all right, it's the time. Maybe the men were gathering nearby for something like that. It probably wasn't too, too bloody because, tiny spoiler, the North is going to have plenty of soldiers available for the Dance of the Dragons. <laughs> Let's put it that way. They're, they're not undermanned at this point in history. If they were, it might have implied the, the Civil War took a lot out of them or maybe they were having m- food problems. But not, since neither happened, they, since they have plenty of soldiers, it's implied that both they have at least sufficient food, maybe not a lot, but sufficient. And if there was blood spilled, it wasn't some massive amount. Benjamin, Brandon, and Elric were in prison. And we don't know what happens to them, whether they were ever let out or pardoned or maybe they took the black. Very reasonable, rationable expectation for Starks. I mean, a lot of Starks voluntarily take the black. Another Benjamin that we know quite well took the black. Surely some Brandons and probably some Elric Starks as well have taken the black. We know of an Osric Stark who took the black. He was the 10-year-old Lord Commander, in fact, which, by the way, off topic, but how the heck did a 10-year-old get elected? That's one thing. How the heck did he take the black? Like, why is a 10-year-old or 9-year-old? Or when did he join the Y? Like, what? That's a, we need more on that one, George. That's when I'm suspicious of the facts. Yeah. That's one where, like, was it really like, 10? Yeah. Was that supposed to be a two? Was he really 20? <laughs> or was that a seven? Was he 70? I can imagine some scenario maybe where someone, I don't know, like, what if you already have a child? What if you have a son and get sent to the wall or decide to go to the oh, wall? Yeah, yeah. Like, could you decide to take the black and bring your son with you? That is what happened with Luca Moore the Lusty. Luca Moore the Lusty had three sons. Brought, his, brought him with well, him. Well, he, they were all given the choice. He didn't, they, they didn't have to go. Alisan was like, okay, the why? Wives were are blame uh, get the blame too because they knew they were sleeping with a king's guard knight, so they get criminal charges too. But the children are innocent. She's like the children have no are blameless here. None of them did anything wrong. So she gave them all choices. She's like, hey, the girls can get jobs at court and this and that, get apprenticeships, go to the faith, whatever. Two of the three boys went to went with their father to the wall. Fertile ground for strong bloodlines here and there in different places that are scattered throughout Westeros. Something that, again, Joe Magician is the expert on where all the strong blood went here and there. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine a scenario where someone took the black, brought their 10-year-old son with them. Five years later, the 10-year-old's gone to 15, proved himself as a warrior. The father gets killed. Time to elect a new one. The son gets it. And the story is the 10-year-old was a da da I can... I can make sense of that. Yeah. But but I would like George to fill that out. <laughs> Same thing. You know, you're talking about how Craig and Stark is relatively well documented, but I still have so many questions about this scenario. Like, I wonder, was this Bernard Stark, was he the ambitious? What was his long-term plan? Did he really think that he would just get to rule the North for a generation and the the, the kid would go from... 14 to 18 to 25 to 40 and just never become, you know? Yeah, was like, he going to try to arrange an he, accident? Like something yeah. like that? So I, Murder him and Yeah, I wonder if it was, if maybe he would just, it was in the works of some complicated plan. Like mm. maybe he saw the writing on the wall of, you know, we're not really ready for winter and I can't let this kid take charge. Or, you know, maybe Cregan was immature or 
brash or maybe it has something to do with the prophecy. Ooh, maybe he yeah. maybe he had been told something Ooh. about the prophecy and you can't let him take over yet. And especially when it doesn't seem like it was an all out violent civil war after the fact. I wonder right. if it was just he's just holding out because he thought he had to do something first. And finally, he just lost control and Cregan took over. And anyway, I can Im- I can imagine there being an incredibly interesting story behind all that even though we quote unquote know the details, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, we definitely don't know all the details. We only know some of them. Yeah. You're right. Like we don't know the kind of thing that if this story was ever made and maybe House of the Dragon will have Craigan describe some of this because it's like, I called it Dance yeah. of the Direwolves because it's a similar scenario, right? You have, you have people that are kind of usurping the right, like people from the same family usurping each other's claim. I would really it, like to see that conversation between Craig and, and Jace right there. Yeah, I mean, right. I, specifically, because Rainier, I was like, oh, you, you two boys are around the same age and you might have stuff in common. There's a thing they have in common. Yeah, like they know what it's like to have Be been, had their claim snagged by their own family. And so, yeah, they, there's a lot of things. You're right. There's a lot they can have in common. That, similar age, you know, similar birth in terms of high station and all that. Yeah, you're totally right. I'm very looking forward to that. Uh, and I'm, I mean, we don't even know who they've cast as Cregan at this point or Cregan at this point, and I'm looking forward to that too. I saw in the chat. Timothy Chalamet. Who else could it possibly be? He's too perfect. He's too perfect. Huh? Super. I see I'm, I'm willing it into existence. In the chat, Richard Seymour says, 20 years from now, when we are going through how archives will use the pronunciation of Cregan to date these videos, Cragen <laughs> versus Cregan. That's right. That's how you know the show changes pronunciations. Nina says this reminds her a bit of the sixth novel in the Accursed Kings, The Lily and the Lion. We have mentioned the Accursed Kings many times. And here's another time. One of the great influences on A Song of Ice and Fire, George cites it many times. And I highly recommend it. It's really good. You can find a link to buy it on our website if you are so inclined. She says, Lord Roger Mortimer, regent for the young King Edward III and lover of his mother, Queen Isabella, acts as though he is the sovereign and the young king is nothing but his heir. He even arranges the exile and murder of two of the young king's family members in order to keep Edward from escaping his influence. Eventually, Edward gathers a group of young lords himself and arrests Mortimer. So yeah, it's entirely possible this is the kind of thing that Bernard was doing, like sniffing out the kind of support Cregan would have and doing things to, to cut that off. Like, he gets this one young lord to come support Cregan and said, marries that lord off or something like that. Finds a way or support... The, maybe not a lord. It's hard to marry a lord off. But if it's a young lord, maybe. But if it's like their supporters, you could maybe find ways to pull that support away. Like, well, you, you're supporting him. Well, what if I marry your daughter to my son? Now you're on my team instead. The, that's where Brandon and Benjamin and, El, and Elric come in when him having three sons. House Karstark probably took the side of Bernard because his wife was Margaret Carstark. So there's another reason why you could see why there's some legitimacy on Bernard's side, given there's some Stark... The Carstarks were Starks long ago, so there's some extra Starkness to that. And if there's a carrot, you can imagine there's a stick also, right? Yeah. Maybe if you don't send me, you're going to get sent to the wall. Or if he really is that nefarious or ambitious or whatever not beyond him to frame someone, to falsely accuse them or yeah. have them assassinated or whatever else. Maybe Roddy the Ruin was on Bernard's side for some reason. Who knows? Well, that, that could come up. And some of these other lords, like, who was that guy who had his trivia question last week? Mad Hal Hornwood. What side was he on during this? He was alive. I mean, these guys didn't just come out of nowhere. They had established careers when the dance broke out. And we're at this point, this is the year 126. We're three years from Jace flying north. 
at the end of the season, which is corresponds to the book. So this is this is nicely aligned with right before that. So when he does take over, whatever the circumstances were overthrowing Bernard, he marries Aranori, who was his friend since childhood. So he had a childhood girlfriend that he ended up marrying, which is kind of cool. Nori, not the most powerful Northern house. So this may have been part of what was holding Cragen back and recovering his lordship as he didn't have a powerful house as his wife's family. Now, of course, as being the Lord, the rightful Lord of Winterfell can find support, you would think, especially a guy mm-hmm. like this who is no coward. <laughs> this is a, a Stark. When you think of a stereotypical Stark, a tough guy, that's Cregan. He's one of the best comparisons we have for Cregan is Ned's brother, Brandon. Maybe not quite so wild, but more along that type. The wild, aggressive type rather than the Ned, Alaric, more stoic, stoic reserved. Yeah, reserved. Yes, that's the word I was looking the for. The wild war- wolf versus the lone wolf. Yes, the wild wolf versus the lone quiet wolf. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah, totally right. But unfortunately, Ara dies giving birth to firstborn son Rickon. Nina writes, if, I wonder if Cregan's longtime fondness for Ara Nori suggests that the Hill clansmen were among those who supported him when he overthrew Uncle Bernard. Yeah, so I said they weren't the most important, but they are fierce. Yeah, that's important. Hill clansmen. Yeah, you know, like that's unusual. A Stark marrying a Hill clansman lady for his bride. That's, I mean, highly unusual. But Kind of cool. <laughs> Maybe that was something that was against Cregan. Bernard used that against him, like politically. Like, look, this is this guy's too friendly with the Hill tribes. I, I'm not sure how that would go. A lot of the start, a lot of the North might be like, that seems cool with us. Like, why is that a problem? But yeah, I mean, maybe Cregan had already made it clear he wanted this marriage. Uh, and Bernard was like, you that. can't do that. You need to marry this Manderley or whatever. And yeah. he's like, I'm not going to. Okay, well, let's just wait till you get in charge. You need to grow up a little. You don't understand your responsibility as the Lord of the North or whatever. Good point, good point. And, and they could use not that. Not saying Bernard's even correct about that, but I can see that mentality or that being at least a piece of the conflict. You totally, know? totally. Uh, Nina continues here. Some of the Hill clans live relatively close to Winterfell. And the clan leaders have shown fierce loyalty to the Starks in the main novels. See, again, the desire to save Ned's little girl, voiced by Morgan Little, Brandon Nori, Hugo Wall, and the Flints. They're like, yes, yeah, save the Ned's little girl. I want to bathe in Bolton blood. They're pretty aggressive and, and up for it, right? She says, maybe the Noris and other clansmen resented the undermining of Stark authority represented by Bernard's overlong regency. Maybe Cregan's closest to Ara and perhaps other children of the clans as well showed the sort of personal connection that Jon Snow advised Stannis to show to the mountain clansmen to win them over. Great take by Nina there. Totally agree. There's a very strong chance that this was, you can almost envision the factions here. Bernard maybe representing the sort of new North, the influence of the South, the bringing in of these new traditions, whereas Cregan was more aligned with the old ways, the hell tribes, the traditions, some of the stuff that maybe needs to change, but not all of it. <laughs> so I can kind of see old guard, new guard divisions in my head, in my head canon. That's kind of where I go with some of this. Hill tribes, old blood versus some of these newer, newer thinking Starks that are you know, a little more ambitious and ruthless and, and power-hungry in ways that the Starks maybe had less of in their, in their past. Still would have had some of it. There's still power in the, uh, in the offing. People are going to squabble over power. But this is a new north. It's a new north. Things are different. It's not all the, it's, it, we got to imagine things a little differently. 
slightly different from the show, Jace is sent to stop a few other places before going to North. In the show, he's only stopping at, at the Vale and Winterfell. In the book, it's a couple other spots, including White Harbor, most notably. And House Manderley at the time is led by Lord Desmond, who is a great-grandson of Lord Theomor. His sons, Torin and Medric, are going to participate in the dance. They do participate in the dance on the book side. It remains to be seen if they will be in the show. But one of the two is a big man, like the Manderleys tend to be. So that's part of why it seems to be a recurring thing. This one of them is described as clever and corpulent. And the other one is like fierce. So both of them are fierce. One of them is clever and corpulent, I guess, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyway, they're both capable. And hopefully they get their full role in the show as they have in Fire and Blood because they're pretty cool. Ah, we like the Manderleys. They got pretty much cut out of the original Game of Thrones show. There was technically a Manderley at the Red Wedding. There was a dude with a, with a mermaid pin that got stabbed in the background. I think he was even big, but <laughs> that's, that's about all. I didn't really... There were a sad... Sad casualty of the show's shrinking of, of plot lines. I just want to point out this the difference in dynamics between people who read the books first and saw the show versus I saw the first show first and read the books. Like I, I understand all these missing things, right? That when you read the books and watched it, where I watched the show and read the books, like, ooh, what's with this mannerly stuff? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, cool. It was extra. extra exciting to have all this new stuff added in. Yeah, I hear that, man. Yeah, it's fun to it is fun to look at this from different different perspectives. That's one of the things we really value about your takes is coming at it from a different angle. Really catches a few different things that way. Good stuff. So let's look at let's look back on some of these as a whole as we wind things down here. I mentioned a few of these things last time briefly at the end. Let's talk about it again in, in more detail. There's a lot of things we don't see from these lords, with the exception maybe of Bernard. We don't hear much about the ruthless ambition of Starks usurping each other is not doesn't seem to be much of that. As we saw, there was very few examples of youthful Starks taking over. Only Cregan, and even he seemed pretty capable at a young age. This implies that this family has maintained its size. They're never forced into a situation where a young lord has to take over. They've got elders around and takes a village to raise a child, that kind of thing. There's always seems like there's a group of Starks around at all times that can maybe help with decisions. And maybe that's in Bernard and Cragen's time, these two factions, this, this village to raise a child disagreed on things, perhaps because of all these cultural changes occurring around them. That's my best guess anyway, as, as to what the, one of the main divisions was, besides just standard pursuit of power. <laughs> that has to be part of it. Along the lines of what I was saying before, it might not purely just be cultural changes, it could also be the levels the the levels of responsibility and power have grown right mm-hmm. like i'm i'm supposing with this new road and this new support that there's new resources and and even i can even imagine like areas of land and people that were hardly noticed before that are now being taxed you know <laughs> uh, so I, I could see like a new new roles for the leaders for the the Lord of Winterfell might have new things to be worried about and considering and taking advantage of and so on that former leaders didn't and so that might create a broader number a broader scope of things to be concerned about that you know maybe Bernard was the first to have to deal with you know yeah or to realize the issues around or the Kriggan's too young to get it yet or et cetera you know. Yeah, one one thing too that I think of is it could be that the tougher demands of the north it just 
has greater leadership requirements. And the Starks know that. Everyone knows that. And that is something that is with them since birth. Since they're very, from a very young age, they're taught that they're, they have greater responsibilities than even maybe a Targaryen being where we saw that in House of the Dragon. We see that all sorts of everywhere. They're not taught their responsibilities very well. They're, they're taught some of them. They're taught, sometimes they're given a level of duties, but they're not, it's not as thorough necessarily. They're not necessarily taught how to do it. Maybe they're told what to do, not how to do it. The Starks might also just take it more to heart. Yeah. Like the Targaryens, like ostensibly they're responsible, but they're still just hold up in their ivory towers, assuming things are going to go their way because they have dragons. Right. The Starks have to actually go out and make sure they're ready for winter. Yes, right. There's a constant driving mechanism making them work hard and making them care. Whereas we saw when things get really soft in the South under Viserys or what started before him, when things are easy, you can get complacent. Exactly what you're saying, sitting high up in your tower, like, oh, these problems aren't so bad. We're, we're in such good shape that these problems just get swallowed up by the greatness of everything else. <laughs> Whereas the North can't be there. No, we can't do that. We can't just take these things for granted. We have to constantly be preparing for the nastiness of winter, which could last for years. We don't know how long it's going to last. We have to be prepared for it to last seven, eight, nine years. It may only last for two or even a matter of months, but they're always on their toes. We're like, yeah, in the South, they're not always on their toes. So I think that's a big deal. And and, and it's not just that. It's been that way for a long time. Not a lot of ballet. Not a lot of ballet. (laughs) (laughs) And also the Starks just seem to be more so than a a lot of great houses, maybe more so than any great house. Once they make a decision, they seem to stick to it. They never, they have not ever broken free. Even if we fast forward, they've never until maybe... At the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. Do they want so, to break free? Do they want to break free? Um, really? They? That's why they have a queen yeah. at the end in, in the show. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, uh, well before that point, at the end of the first show, there was no, like, hardly any impetus to break free until the Ned Stark thing, until Rob Stark declares himself king because of the Umber and the Car Stark and everybody's suggesting it as a good idea. It's like, hey, well... Now's the time. It's a good place. And it is in part because of all the cultural changes that kept happening. The North continued to be held by in the sway of the South, and that arrangement wasn't working out as well as it used to, as, as events of the first book showed. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting when they do finally, quote-unquote, break free, what are they breaking free from? A usurper? A bastard? Yeah. You know, like, you could still argue that it, it, the Seven Kingdoms isn't really what it once was. Yes. The, the Iron Throne isn't doesn't represent what it used to. Yeah, like, if you go back to the reason Torin knelt, and all the great reasons we said, this could be really good for the North. They could have better trade, better all this other stuff, better protection. Support, help stability. from the South. Yeah. Well, they're not going to expect help from the South when Joffrey's king. <laughs> like yeah. reason that's not that's completely unreasonable. When the and when the last king murdered the Lord of the North and their son, you know what I mean? Like that's, it, that says it all, right? Like how are they gonna trust that? Like what kind of what kind of peace going forward, what kind of expectation can you have from that arrangement? Yeah. Three hundred years cha- passed by, and of course things have changed. And it's time to re re-examine this arrangement. And uh, which is ironic because it's when the arrangement most needs to be in place because <laughs> the others are coming now. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, of all yep, the times yep. for this to fall apart. But hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's part of why it's a compelling story. If it happened at the right time, at the time they were most prepared, well, that wouldn't be as interesting. It would have been a lot less drama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe just George would have to make the others more powerful. It's like, well, they were still too strong, <laughs> even though they were prepared. I'd rather drama creep than power creep. 
I'd yeah. rather, yeah, right? totally, totally. Yeah, like, oh, let's make the army stronger. I'm like, no, nah, let's make it more interesting. That doesn't necessarily make it more interesting. <laughs> Just bitter swords. I don't know. What, what does that mean? 10,000 more men on each side? Like, what is that? That's not more interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's it. I think, I think the Starks, just the demands of the North as a culture, as a region, produces tougher leaders. I think that's a, there's more to it than that, but that alone is huge. And that's probably why we don't see as many drunks amongst the Starks, um, as many womanizers, as many Starks with excessive bastards. It certainly happens. And maybe some of it happens more than we think. It's just kept under wraps because this isn't exactly, it's not always historical for, for things like that. It's historical when their drunkenness drives them to make bad decisions like Hagan the Unworthy or Robert. But if they're a functional alcoholic, it may not even make the history book, you know, but that would still, a functional alcoholic can still cause a lot of harm <laughs> with bad decision-making. Yeah, so uh, about time to wrap things up. Do you have any final thoughts, Sean? Any overview things, any last things you want to say? Ashea, you as well, or any, anyone in the chat there? Final thoughts? We, we covered 129 years of Stark Lords, y'all. <laughs> Cultural changes, uh, modifications, evolutions. One thought bubble and Emmy isn't, isn't something we can like cover right quick at the end here. It's just like ideas for whole more episodes. Is I wonder how similar or what parallels there could be or what contrasts could be made if we look at this same time period for uh, the Tyrells, the, the West, the Lannisters, yeah. the Reach, what their leaders were, what activities they went through, how many there were, how stable they were, etc. Yeah, some of them would be pretty interesting. And some of them had some very interesting lords and, and ladies in there. They wouldn't have as many of the cultural changes. That would be its one thing. And they would have been less isolated. So I think the North is a little bit unique in this room. There's no wall behind them all. There's all these factors that make the North kind of unique in that situation. But, but still, you're right. There are, there is, it's just fertile ground. The Ironborn are a good example of a culture that's very different. So they had a bigger adjustment period. It'd be really fertile ground in the reach. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I, I wonder even, you know, on the meta level, like, would we have as much or way more information about them, right? Would we have as good a records mm. of their different leaders and their activities yeah, and everything? in some cases, yeah. For sure. All right, let's, let's have our trivia question. Let's get the answer here. Remember the question was, who appointed the first ever court singer and court fool. And if you know the names of the court singer and court fool, bonus question, bonus points you get. The answer is good Queen Alzan. Not an obscure figure at all. <laughs> One of the most <laughs> famous monarchs of all time in Westeros. And what were the bonus answers? The bonus answers were the singer, Tom the Strummer was the singer. And the first court fool was good wife, a man who dressed in woman's clothing. That was his deal. He was a funny dude, but... Okay. Or a funny femme dude. And a good wife. <laughs> a good wife, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so far on the opposite end of like a, a court jester being a dwarf, this was a very large person, apparently. So cool. Anyway, that's that. Another trivia question next time. Not next week, though. We are off next week for Thanksgiving. And we are traveling, so we will be back the week after. And we'll be going through most of November. We have our most of December. We have one week off in December for the GotCon in LA. We will be streaming on Christmas Day. We will be streaming on New Year's Day. Those both fall on Sundays. We don't want to take all those days off. That's ridiculous. So we're gonna keep going. Yes, that's how we do it here at History of Westeros. Holidays are just another day to stream. Fun. Streams are fun. We do them on holidays. Yeah, <laughs> they fit. 
Cool, y'all. All right. So thanks for attending. If you came live, thanks for listening. If you listened afterwards, either way, we appreciate your consideration, your time, your interest. Thanks to Nina for her great notes. Lots of excellent takes today, as is usual. Thanks to those of you who support us financially via Patreon, patreon.com, Westeros History, or History of Westeros, rather. Uh, you can also support us with a subscription on Spotify. If you're already a paid subscriber on Spotify, you can just tack a little extra on that goes to us. Spotify is one of the best in the business at taking a small, small, small cut, whereas other platforms like YouTube and, well, YouTube comes to mind off the top, takes a huge amount. It's, we're not doing their partner program unless they change that. But Spotify only is takes like 5%. Super Chats? Or like a... They do take a chunk of Super Chats, but they also have their own version of Patreon that we called, some, okay. called YouTube subscribers, but they take like 30%. It's like, no, no, oh. we're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Patreon <laughs> takes like 10 and Spotify takes like 10 because 5% always goes to the credit cards. Like everyone charges at least that much because of the credit cards. Yeah. No, yeah. even no one's more powerful than them. <laughs> the credit card companies, they're <laughs> the top of the, the heap there. So anyway, that was more than y'all asked for about how that, how that <laughs> works, but that is how that works. So that is why we go with the ones we go with because of how much they charge. <laughs> we pick the ones that are leaving the money to you and us and not and not taking too much for themselves because there's only so much value they're adding. They do, they do add some, but <laughs> all right, you guys and us. It's about that's that's who's that's that's who it should stay between. Yes. All right, folks. <laughs> until next time, you know what to do. We'll have another vote for our next topic, so you'll know coming up soon. Until then, Valar rewatches and Valar rereads. <laughs> <laughs>